You're listening to Filmmakers Drinking Bourbon. Hey, what up, Internet? This is Frank. And this is Adam. And we're filmmakers. And we're drinking bourbon. Cheers. Cheers. What are you drinking? I am drinking a bullet bourbon, which is awesome, and I appreciate it, with some Sunny D in it, because I am drink like a woman. Nice. Yes. Uh, I'm just on the rocks here. Oh, manly. <laughs> Making me look bad. It's 9.30 in the morning, folks, so uh, I'm proud of myself just for drinking it all. <laughs> so, uh, Adam, uh, none of our listeners know who you are yet. And um, they shouldn't. Yeah. We, we'll get to that later. Um, but we do have somebody else on the call. Yes. That we're going to bring in here. Um, Brandon alluded uh, to this last episode. Uh, his name's Clint Wells. And uh, let's see if we have him on. Clint, are you here? Hey, what's up, guys? Uh, I'm not drinking bourbon, I'm sad to say, but I am drinking coffee out of a skull mug. Nice. Responsible but still metal. Which, yeah, which sort of legitimizes it a little bit. <laughs> and it's very appropriate for the month, too. I think so. So, um, Clint, who are you? Uh, I'm a musician uh, based in Nashville, Tennessee. And um, I spend most of my, my time traveling and playing music uh, on tour. I'm also a songwriter. And uh, I also co-host a, an all-Metallica podcast called metal up your podcast and uh i met brandon out on the road i don't remember where we were and uh we've got to talking after the show and i'm also sort of an amateur film nerd i don't make films but i'm a big big fan uh a budding cinephile and uh so he thought it might be a good idea to, to come on the show and talk to you guys i can see that i remember uh him first telling me about this this idea i was like what he he doesn't make films like like in Metallica, that has nothing to do with what <laughs> we're doing on this podcast. But I think it, I think it actually works out uh, well, especially for the month of October, um, because we're going to be talking about horror films as well, I believe, which is right up your alley. I've heard it is. I, I like all films, and uh, I like serious films and and all that stuff. But ever since I was a kid, I was sort of drawn to horror movies, and I still. I see a lot of a lot of social merit in them, and I think they can be fun and ridiculous. But I actually think they have a lot to say, also. So uh, I'm pretty stoked to talk about it. And of course, there's a cross section with heavy music and hard music and metal and bands naming themselves after great classics like Black Sabbath and White Zombie and so forth. So it's, there's a cross section there that I think is relevant. So backing up a second, um, you said you're a musician. Are you playing metal or some other genre? No, so <laughs> it's pretty hard to make a living making metal these days. Um, I, my main gig is with a guy named Rodney Atkins, who's a popular country artist, and that's kind of my main thing. And uh, when I'm not doing that, I'm usually making indie rock and pop rock, and um, I'm also a songwriter, so when I'm not on the road, I'm, I'm writing popular songs for film and TV and radio. I privately play metal music to myself when my wife's not home. <laughs> But uh, those days, yeah, those days are behind me, left in my adolescence. I, I learned how to play 
through playing heavy music. But I rarely uh, am afforded the luxury of bringing, bringing that flavor to my work. So you said that some of your songwriting has appeared on uh, TV commercials and such? Yeah, I don't know if it's anything that would be recognizable. I did a short film called Becoming with my friend Katie Featherston, who is the star of the Paranormal Activity movies. Uh, she's a producer and a writer out in L.A., and I, did a, I, did, I scored a film for her. She did a web series called Solace of the Unloved. I did, I'd scored that whole web series. Uh, so it's stuff like that. That's it's cool. A, it's a humble. It's a humble living. I'm not. A, I'm not Mick Jagger. I'm not <laughs> James Hetfield. You're not. I'm sc- one of the many. I'm one of the many unfamous musicians that people don't know about who sort of make the industry work. You know what I mean? Like this blue collar, normal dude, grinding it out, making music. Exactly. And there's a lot more of you than there are of the uh, big name folks. It's it's probably really similar to the film industry. Yep. Exactly. So, um, so, uh, so, what do you, what do you, so you guys are both filmmakers? Yes. A budding one here, yes. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, so, touring with um, this country music star, how is that? Are you, are you going on all of his shows or just the ones around you? Or how does that work? No, it's, it's a, it's a national touring act. And uh, most country music in Nashville is pretty family oriented type touring. So, um, we leave, our buses leave usually on Thursday night at midnight, and we usually play two or three shows a weekend, and we're home on Sunday. So a lot of us have families, and, and um, we sort of structure our tours that way. So it's pretty much every weekend we're out. If we go out to the West Coast, we'll fly out there, and our buses will meet us. And uh, it's cool, man. It's great. All the, all the dudes in the band uh, are sort of displaced rock kids, so we all sort of share that thread. And... The fans are really sweet, and, you know, it's just nice to have a steady gig. It's nice to work. I, I think when I was younger and maybe a little more snobbish or grumpy or principled, <laughs> I might have uh, had a problem with it. But, you know, as I get older and, and work my way through my career, I'm, I'm just really grateful to, to be working. Yeah, and it sounds, that sounds uh, awesome that you get to tour but also be home frequently as well. Well, dude, in my in my early touring days, I've been touring for about fifteen years, and when I first started, it, I was playing in rock bands a little more, indie rock bands, and it was pretty common to go out for about eight weeks at a time, and it was just normal. Eight, you know, you were going to do the whole country in one go. It'd usually, be about fifty shows, and uh, you do that sometimes twice a year. Yeah. And so, but when you you know, in my early twenties, I was up for that. I didn't, I you know, I didn't have a family and. I was kind of on that ride, and and I had a lot of fun. Um, but, you know, I'm 34 now with a daughter, and I'm married. And so, yeah, it, it is nice to sort of have a little more stability, which is rare in music. For sure. And uh, Brandon said that um, sometimes you'd wear, like, metal shirts um, out on the country stage and get them yeah, to play I, Metallica. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I try to take that flavor to... Uh, to those fans I'll, i mean i'll wear yeah i wear metal shirts i have a battle vest which is kind of a staple of the metal community it's filled with not only is it filled with heavy metal patches that i hand sewed by the way uh <laughs> i also have a bunch of horror movie patches on it i'll wear racerhead t-shirts at these shows and you know i have these like really cool fucked up like skull rings that i wear and sometimes i'll look over at the jumbotron or whatever and they'll have a close-up of my hands i'm a guitar player and 
I'll get a kick out of seeing like I have this ring that's like a skeleton eating a skeleton snake with wings and that'll just be like featured on the Jumbotron in front of all these country fans. <laughs> nice. I get a kick out of that. You ever sneak in and any Metallica I, I, songs in a country version for them? Uh, we don't do a country version, but we do kind of a um, kind of a guitar hero breakdown where me and the other guitar player and our fiddle player sort of trade solos. And uh, in the middle of that, we actually play about two minutes of Inner Sandman. Nice, sweet, Classic. in earnest. Like we we play we play it the way it sounds on the record. And do they, and do they dig it? Love it. They love it. <laughs> well, that's a song that even if you know you may not have Metallica's records, but that's a song that most people know it's it's in most people's consciousness so it's it's a home run every night we do it it really is yeah i can i can definitely see that um speaking of metallica uh this podcast you run um metal up your podcast can you tell us more about that yeah it's a podcast that i co-host with my friend ethan luck who's also a touring musician uh in nashville he's out with kings of leon right now and um we we love music and that's kind of our common bond and we've been talking about it for about six months it was his idea and he he wanted to get me on board with it i i won't say i didn't want to do it but i i was aware of how much work it would take and i'm sure you know what i'm talking about to really do a successful podcast so i was a little hesitant i finally got on board and we started in january and we do an episode a week and the topics range we'll do an episode on james hetfield we'll do an episode on the black album we'll do an episode on uh rick rubin who produced one of their records we we cover we do tours we do their gear we do their merch and uh we we, it's all things metallica and it's it's going really well we've we've grown a lot and it's kind of taken on a life of its own and we've kind of started a cool little community and it's become kind of a part-time job yeah, it, it definitely is, and I bet it's making millions of dollars, too, like every other podcast, especially ours. Oh, we're super rich. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're rich. We're so rich. It's been tough adjusting to my new lifestyle as a rich podcaster. Yeah. But, um, but the cool thing about the podcast that we've found is, obviously, it's for straight-up Metallica nerds, for sure. Yep. Um, but what we've been finding is the show has gotten people who maybe have gotten off the ride a little bit. It's gotten them reinvigorated into the band. And then there's even people who didn't really, they weren't even huge fans, but they like the show and the show has sort of, you know, introduced them to Metallica. So it's been really fun to kind of see people get excited about it because, you know, I'm as excited about the band as I've ever been. The, the podcast sort of demands it. I'm listening to Metallica and reading books about Metallica and thinking about Metallica more than I, more than I ever thought I would. So. Yeah, it's gotten a lot of people uh, back on the lightning. Then, yeah, it really has, which is a really big compliment for the show. Uh, and it doesn't hurt, you know. They released a new album uh, a year ago, actually a year ago next month, and it's it's thankfully really good. They're on a really <laughs> successful world tour right now. They did a stadium tour in the states, mostly sold out. So they're having an exciting time in their career also which is amazing that this far into i mean they started in 1982 it's amazing that all these years later they're still they're still kicking ass they're still relevant they're making good good records yep they're not yet they're not yet relegated to this sort of legacy act that just plays their hits you know yeah um have so it's you an ha- exciting time to to talk about metallica have you have you had any any of them on your show before 
No, I, I, I look at our show almost like, like a Zelda game, like we're working our way to the final boss, and I, I sort of envision that being sitting down with James Hetfield, and um, we do have several members of their crew who are fans of the show. Uh, their, pyro, their pyro guy is a fan, their merch guy, one of their video guys, so we've been able to get inside of that world a little bit, yep. um, but we, we've not made it to the, the final Zelda level yet. <laughs> Um, so what, what first attracted you to Metallica? Well, when I, in 1991, I was eight years old and I saw the video for Inner Sandman, which I don't know how, how old are you guys? I'm 35. 42. Okay. So you're, you're probably trapped. You, you probably remember the MTV explosion of the black Mm -hmm. album. Sure. It's a pretty big deal. Um, so I saw that when I was eight years old, and it's a great song. It's a great video. I was hooked. It's creepy and scary, and it's got a great riff. So I've been a fan since I first heard that song. I didn't, I didn't stop to think about it. I didn't, you know, I didn't ponder it. I immediately was a, a fan, and uh, it's kind of been that way ever since. It's, it's powerful music, you know. I would argue that it's actually just great art. It's great music, which is actually really hard to accomplish with hard music. For it to sort of transcend being an angry kid, you know, like it, their music, and I, you know, there's maybe five metal bands, five to ten, I would say that that hit on a lot of levels as a kid, as an adult, uh, as a twenty-something, as a thirty-something. Most of our fans are in their forties and fifties because they came online with Metallica from day one with their first record, Kill 'Em All. So because I was eight when the Black Album happened, I had to sort of, I had the sort of fun journey of going back and discovering their their sort of seminal thrash records. Yeah. And and a lot of people don't like their 90s stuff, but because because of my age, and because I actually do think it's good, I'm kind of, my, my era of Metallica that I really hone in on is, is the 90s. Adam, what about you? What, what first attracted you to Metallica? Stoners. I was I moved to Westerville, Ohio, and I came across. I was a huge Back to the Future fan, and Marty McFly had the little trick he did with his skateboard. He kicked it up, and I had a bunch of stoner skateboards outside my house all the time, and they were always wearing Metallica patches and going around and hanging out. And they they played for me one time, Injustice for All, the album, the first the first Metallica song I ever heard was Blackened, and it fucking blew my mind because I grew up in a house of Oak Ridge Boys and Statler Brothers and Dolly Parton, and so I heard Blackened, and my mind just blew up. And as a Dungeons and Dragons guy who likes to tell stories, when I heard the song One, I was just I, I just I was just all in on Metallica. Man, that song is so beautiful and it's so powerful. It's so I'm a history guy too, so the war thing, plus the storytelling, plus the just kick ass song it is. Oh, I was hooked and Metallica One is always gonna be my favorite song, although um, I'm getting older, and the song they did uh, for whom the bell tolls with the uh, San Francisco Orchestra, I do believe that is a beautiful freaking song behind it. It's probably my favorite song of all time. Is that for whom the bell tolls with uh, with the orchestra behind? It. It's just so beautiful. So I, I dig Metallica. You know, for for me, I I actually avoided Metallica for a long time until I was uh, in eleventh grade. Like I avoided all metal music for some reason. I just I. There is this, just probably to me, there is this stigma attached to it, like, oh, that's what, like, these, like, goth kids and, like, everyone dressed in, like, black jeans and a black t-shirt and long hair and a beard in high school, like, that's what they, that's what they listen to and it's weird and they're biting off 
heads of pigeons and worshiping the devil and like i was like ah it's just not me um for whatever reason it just the music scared me even though i had never given it a chance even though i was a huge rap fan and like they would talk about murdering people and raping people like that's okay with me but that's cool uh, but then there was this uh there's this girl in in my class and uh you know i liked her and she was the sweetest little girl like and she was um relatively popular too and she had this blue jansport backpack with metallica written in black sharpie i'm like oh, that's interesting like i wouldn't i wouldn't peg her for a metallica fan and i was like maybe i need to listen to metallica and and so that's what got me listening to metallica i, I finally actually you know seek them out and and listen to the thing i'm like oh i've actually heard some of these songs i didn't realize it was metallica and i'd like the songs <laughs> like this whole stuff's not scary and like then i started to get into you know other metal bands too and you know i just like a, a variety of music but the metallica stuff um was i was just huge into that and in, in the later part of high school because of uh because of that girl <laughs> Yeah, it's so weird now that they were they were so forward and they were so thrash metal. We talk about how uh, you know revolutionary they were, and now here my son is twelve years old and his favorite band's friggin' Metallica. He thinks, uh, oh nice. He thinks "Don't Tread on Me" should be the national anthem. He friggin' loves Metallica. <laughs> so uh, it's so cool wow. to think that that is now classic rock, and the kids are like looking. At least my son, thank God, it loves it and thinks it's just amazing. So God, God bless to Metallica. Yeah, and that's that. I mean, I, I went to two of their stadium shows this year, and it was so such a trip to see. I mean, I saw a lot of parents there with their kids, you know, and so kind of just seeing that band become sort of a, a cross generational band that speaks to their parents and their kids, and that's something they can share together, and it's pretty cool. And it speaks to the power of their career, I think. I definitely agree. Um, Bringing this back to movies a bit, um, have you seen uh, Metallica's Through the Never movie? I did see it, and uh, I liked it. I really did. Um, it's a concert film. It's sort of a traditional concert film, but it's also interspersed with a very strange, uh, dialogueless narrative that never really gets explained, which, bob you know, people don't like shit that's not explained to them, so people didn't understand what the narrative was about um I, have you guys seen it i don't want to talk about it like as if you guys haven't seen it if you've seen it but i have not seen it yet just pieces just okay. pieces I've, I've watched the trailer oh, okay. and i've read a little article on why you know three reasons why it failed at the box office and one of them is kind yeah, of what you're talking about well. people didn't know what it was about it well because you know it was marketed poorly it was marketed as a concert oh no it was marketed as an actual film so with a narrative and you know an actor and but really if you if you if you add all the uh, movie narrative together it's only about 15 minutes and hmm. it, and it's a strange trippy so it's the story of a roadie who works for Metallica who is sent out by the band's manager to go retrieve uh, a special bag because whatever's in the bag is really important to the band he's got to get it before showtime or whatever and so while Metallica's playing at this arena, Armageddon is happening elsewhere in the world. So he's out and like there are riots and there's like zombies and shit. And <laughs> nice. it's, it's really 
it's really trippy. And oh. I know it sounds ridiculous, but that's what I love about horror movies. Like if, if you just say out loud the premise to most of my favorite horror movies, they sound ridiculous, and I love that. But visually, I mean, they spent thirty million dollars on the film. Wow! Because they really Lars Ulrich, the drummer for Metallica, is a is a big film nerd, and they really they really I I believe kind of did it right. It's a bummer that it that it was a failure, but I think it's I think it's worth checking out. But it's mostly just a concert film, and it sounds fucking awesome. It's a great set list. They they played. It's a really unique set list. They played a lot of really cool stuff, and it looks great. So mm. it's worth checking out. And and it's like you just got to get on the ride with it. You know, if you if you're looking for a Scorsese thing, yeah, you're going to be disappointed. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, if you take it at what it is, it's it's just fun. I and I'm I, glad they did it. I hope they. Um I hope they gave him a break on the licensing fees. What do you for the, mean? For the music. I hope Metallica. Oh, yeah, yeah. They probably worked out a deal for yeah. that. Um, so, um, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that, you know, maybe spoiler alert, maybe not. What was ever in the bag was probably not important, actually, in the end. All right, well, this is going to get this is going to get kind of deep into the Metallica story. So they had a, their first bass player was a guy named Cliff Burton and he was their first official bass player. He played on their first record and he was a really special cat and he taught them. He, they all kind of looked up to him. He was a little older. He was extremely diverse in his musical taste. And so he brought a lot of diverse flavor to the band, blah, blah, blah. All right. In 1986, he died in a bus accident. Their yep. bus tipped over and the bus crushed him and he died. Uh, they ended up replacing him with this guy named Jason Newstead, and you know that's when Injustice for All happened, and the Black Album, and all this stuff. But Cliff has remained this sort of really important spiritual figure around the band this whole time. I mean, pe- people love Cliff. Pe- people still go to his grave. I've got Cliff Burton patches on my battle vest. All this stuff. What what was supposedly in the bag was the spirit of Cliff Burton that they carry with them. Everywhere. Oh wow. Okay. And, at, and at the very end of the film, over the credits, they play an instrumental song, which is largely considered Cliff Burton's swan song, the last song he wrote or whatever, uh, because it's real bass. It's really heavy on the bass. And, uh, but they play Orion in the empty arena and the bags on the stage. So it's, again, it's just it's symbology that s- sounds ridiculous unless you're really emotionally invested in it. And I, I thought it was really cool. It is. Um, so they made they made this film. What do you What are your thoughts on other musicians? Should they be making films? I know Rob Zombie makes a lot of films. What are your What are your thoughts on that? I think anyone who can make a good film should make a film. Amen. <laughs> Regardless of what their day job is. So, uh, the the problem is with like with anything is that it's it's such an investment it's so hard to do Br- Brady St. Ellis once said that uh, he said it's a miracle that any movie gets made even bad ones he he described any movie as a miracle mm-hmm. and he was Truth. like for a movie to be good for he said for a movie to be good just people don't realize what all goes into that just how rare it is for a movie to be good so I think if you if you're willing to figure out how to try to do it you should try to do it you know and rob Zombie's kind of a polarizing dude i, I personally think his films are going to be way more appreciated much later i mean they're not masterpieces but 
House of a Thousand Corpses and and uh, The Devil's Rejects are great. Sure. I believe great. And I thought Lords of Salem was really, really interesting. And I, th- I think that movie might end up being like a, it, when people look back in 50 years, a lot more important than it is now. That's why I you did it. the Halloween movie. What, what's that? Why? This that you, you say, should musicians make movies? And I'm like, anyone who has an eye and an art and a story to tell should get out there and tell it. Because you never know who's going to totally. gravitate to that. And everyone's got a different eye for things. And musicians have a different view on the world. And it's wonderful to see that. And I think, you know, I'm just a budding filmmaker. But, you know, anytime I can see somebody with a do eye and a new vision, you never know what you're going to get. So, absolutely. I'm 100% behind it. I love the Rob Zombie movies. I'm looking forward to seeing more of them. Uh, anyone who has that kind of, like you say, it's so hard to make a movie. So, hey, if you want to do that, put that effort into it, hey, I'll support you a thousand percent. So, um, absolutely. But it's rare, right? Like, other than Rob Zombie, who who could we even name who directs films? I, I, don't, I don't think it happens often. I would like to see Marilyn Manson direct a film. Oh, he's so good in concert. Well, he did. Didn't he do that Phasmagorium? What did phantasmagorium what was that movie he did i don't know but i just heard he got some rave reviews from being in some new movie he was in his, his performance acting wise oh. was great so uh, yeah so yeah i'm 100 percent that marilyn manson vision would be wonderful to see yeah he was in that sons of anarchy show right i'm not sure i, I don't know um but there's a lot musicians can bring to the table with that too especially if you're in heavy music i mean Frank, you mentioned that when you first heard, you avoided heavy music when you were a kid because it, quote-unquote, scared you. I think that's great. I think that's awesome. Absolutely. And I, I, I think that's sort of, sort of where you get some cross-section with hard music and horror films because hard music, like horror films, they don't, they don't bow down to taboo, you know? There's no... There are no rules. Everything's on the table. So... That's what attracts me to both of those things. And do you like, um, I know, I, th- I think I heard a quote one time that, um, well, not a quote, but like a, a thing that Rob Zombie said that um, he likes making movies like under the $10 million budget because the studio, like he has a lot more creative control over that. Yeah. Um, so on that vein, like what do you think is, uh, what do you like better? Do you like big, like huge budget horror films, like the smaller ones like that, or like these, like super independent, like three thousand dollar horror films. I, well, this is gonna sound like bullshit, but I mean it. If it's good, I don't care how they did it. I will say, yep. uh, I think that I think artists in general in any medium do work best when they have limitations. I think limitations force you to be creative, and and most of my favorite movies are movies that were made for cheap. Like you know. Here's here's what I like about expensive movies that do well. Like the movie It, for example, is the highest grossing horror movie of all time. I saw it twice. Wow. I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was good. Um, You're talking about the new, the did, new one? What, yeah, yeah, the new one that just okay. came out. Uh, what, I, what I liked about it being big budget and it making its money back plus a kajillion dollars is the success of that movie just is good for all horror movies because yep. now the big studios, which I'm not a big fan of, I think that I don't think they're the best thing for true art, but what they're going to do now is say, "Oh, we can make more money here, making a more artful horror film instead of this bullshit Jason Bloomhouse crank out, you know, Ouija Part Six or whatever." <laughs> like, 
I'm, I'm pretty I'm pretty down on that on like sort of contemporary modern horror but there's a lot of really great auteur art house horror films being made and now these directors and writers are going to be given more shots because of a movie like it did so well yeah but I would say in general my favorite movies were made with smaller budgets because you're right like the directors and producers are usually able to negotiate more creative control and anytime the artist who made who's making the goddamn thing has the most control possible you're going to get the better film I think yeah, I can, I can definitely see that. Um, so you're so this is uh, October twenty seventh, and we're actually going to be releasing this uh, later this afternoon. So uh, we are still officially in in October, barely. Um, I heard you're doing a thirty one days of horror viewing. Nice. Yeah, it's I do it every year, and it's just a fun excuse to tell my wife, hey, we, you know, my wife and I like to watch movies together, and. October's a great excuse to be like, well, you know it's going to be a horror film. Horror films aren't her favorite, so... Yeah, I I haven't been able to quite do one a day. Um, I've doubled up on a few days when I missed, but... Yeah, I I do 31. I try to do 31. So what's your favorite one? It's not easy. What was your favorite one you saw this year? Oh... Um... I revisited uh, one of my favorite top 10 horror movies of all time is the 1978 uh, remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers yes. with Donald Sutherland absolutely, and, uh, and Brooke Adams and Jeff Goldblum and Leonard Nimoy. It's a great cast. Uh, I did rewatch that. Um, I'm trying to think of a new one I saw that, that really kind of blew me away. It's not been a great year. <laughs> so far for horror movies. I watched one the other night that actually is a brand new movie. It's on Netflix called The Babysitter. And uh, the premise is this really cool, hot chick babysitter is babysitting this kid. And they're really close friends. And they have this really cool relationship. And he goes to bed, but he wakes up and he wants to see what she's kind of up to while he's asleep. And it turns out she's a Satanist in a cult, kind of a blood cult. And... Uh, she uses the power of Satan to get whatever she wants and she has to she has to have innocent blood to do it so she's going to kill him and hmm. it's a real self-aware movie it's a lot of fun it pokes fun at horror movies it pays homage to horror movies it's just a 90 minute fun ride hmm. uh, I was really impressed with that check that out I don't know the director's name but it's on Netflix it's really great and um, speaking of today the 27th uh stranger things season two comes out and i know I, I talked to you a little bit before we started recording that you've watched season one and you said it was okay and adam said he hasn't seen it sorry. at all sorry too um, many kids at home i got i'm busy um i'm just well I'm, you, you know it go ahead oh, go ahead sorry frank um i'm just i'm actually really excited about season two um i'm I'm kind of, I kind of think they're going to ruin it, but I'm still excited to watch it. Uh, my my wife's in France right now, and she gets home tomorrow, and that's what we're doing when she gets home. We're going to get a, a Jets pizza. I don't know if you have Jets down there, but it's awesome. So good. Um, we do. And uh, we're going to start, we're going to watch an episode or two awesome. of season two. But i um, pretty sure that's, um, you know, people might be wondering where Brandon and Alex are. I think they might be in the upside down world right now. I think. I think Brandon's the new Barb. <laughs> okay, you're calling back to the the sort of other dimension in Stranger Thing, Things. Yeah, yeah. So what were you going to say about I was, 
Stranger Things? I, well, I was really glad it was good. And like I said before, like anytime any of this stuff's good, I'm really glad for what it means for horror movies in general. Mm-hmm. I didn't think it, you know, people were, people sort of went on and on. It's this sort of 80s nostalgia, Stephen King thing. And I just, my, my kind of thought of that was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, all right. The kids are cute all that I'm, I'm glad there's a season two i think that's great very few shows get better as they go along it's yep. super duper rare so I, I hope it's good i don't we'll see um and i'm i'm definitely guilty of this but i worry about i'm interested what you guys think about this as filmmakers i worry about binge watching culture like i'm not sure it's really good for the love of film or shows it's it's a really strange new phenomenon that that isn't going to change. I mean, the trains left the station. Pe- people are going to binge. Binge watching is sort of the new way to, to watch stuff. And um, but I find myself binge watching a show, and then re- and and liking it even, and then be- realizing like I don't know. I couldn't tell you what happened in any of it. You know what I mean? It all blazes together. Uh, it's just this weird thing that happens with how you perceive content. Where like I couldn't really tell you what Stranger Things is about. It's these kids, and there's some government experiment. I watched it. I watched it all in about two days and was invested in it. Like, I didn't watch it while looking at my phone or anything. Like, I watched it. But I don't really know what... You know what I mean? Like, I couldn't really tell you any scene that sticks out. I wonder if that's a product of just dumping so much shit into your brain. Whereas, when you have to, like, go to a movie theater, or you have to rent a film, or put it in your DVD player, or... You know what I'm saying? Like... I, I wonder if the the sort of slowed down process of that you retain the art more. I think so. You know, I'm a huge Game of Thrones guy, and um, it's great to have my my dad, mom, and my kids all love it too. So you actually take that time and that week between episodes, and you discuss it, and you ponder it, and you think you you predict what's going to happen in the future. You actually, let it, it seeps into you a little bit, and you actually wait weeks and weeks and weeks to do this. And over the course that you've talked about it, you've processed it, you really, like you said, you you watch Stranger Things, you don't know, know what's about. Whereas Game of Thrones, you've looked, you know, everything, you know, where everyone is, you know, what's going on. So um, I think that being invested and having taken the time, being there week to week to week, is, is definitely is something to be look into. And I think it's something very important, and it lets it seep into you. So yeah, that binge watching thing I think is great, but the anticipation. Of looking forward to something, I think is so important. Um, Where you should get it right now, it's like yeah, it's just recycled and gone. So, well, it, I'm just thinking about in terms of music. Like, I, I don't really see a season of a show like a record, the ten songs on a record, ten episodes. I don't see it that way. It'd be like releasing ten records like all at once, hmm. and you're like, but I want you guys to talk about the one. I want the one to marinate. You know, yep. like. I don't know. As a as a filmmaker, I would just be, uh, you know, I worry about you guys. I I want the best for you guys because I love movies so much. And um, there's a podcast I love a lot. I don't know if you guys are hip to it. It's the Brett Easton Ellis podcast. You guys know who that is? No, I don't. He's an author. He wrote American Psycho and Less Than Zero. Less Than Zero is amazing. He's he's kind of he's kind of known for that, but he lives in L.A. and he's a huge, huge cinephile. And his podcast which is called the Brady St. Ellis podcast uh, is, is just really about film culture. Um, and so he, he has mostly guests on his show or like filmmakers, like he had Rob Zombie and Eli Roth and it's mostly producers and actors and, and directors. And uh, he, he talks a lot about film culture and he's, he's pretty worried about it. You know, it's, 
Mm-hmm. Is movie going culture dead? And do people even care anymore? And I think the binge watching kind of fits into that. And uh, I'm concerned about it. I, I want I want all my friends and all you filmmakers out there to be able to make a living and continue making films. You know. I mean the one the one nice thing about binge watching is you get you can get into a show a lot faster. Like if if I watch if I um, back in the days where, where you know I used to have a cable subscription and like all you know in the fall the new shows would come on and watch a show like okay that's maybe interesting I'll have to wait a week for another next show and like next week rolls around like eight o'clock like oh I have something going on and I don't don't watch it and then like I forget about watching the show like whereas if I binge watched two or three episodes in one night I'd be like okay I'm kind of into this and so I'd watch the rest of them. And so right, the accessibility I, I, of it. I do think it works in that way, but I do, I do get the concern that you don't appreciate it as well. Um, I I know back in August or September, I for another podcast project, I went and I listened to over a hundred different podcasts, um, like episodes of podcasts across several different shows um, as research and like. I consumed a ton of content and like, you know, I, I know kind of what happened, but like everything merges together and I just don't appreciate all of it. And, and even that is a a function of, um, they didn't release those episodes in a binge style to be binged. It's just that I came into it later and I'm like, okay, download all 30 episodes and play them back to back while I'm driving in the car. And so I just consumed them that way. And I think it's, yeah, I think that point proves that it's, you know, if you if you do the chicken or the egg on this, you know, does binge watching exist because that's the format that the content makers wanted? Or is, I, I think it's the, that's what we demand now. And I think that's what we're used to. So you're going to go binge. I think we're a binge culture. So we're going to binge whatever. And so the, you know, Netflix, for example, they're they're responding more to the demand of people, I think. We we have that with our show. I don't I don't know if you've experienced this, Frank, but we'll have we'll have someone that'll come online with our show. They'll discover us somehow, whatever, and we'll get these emails that say, "Oh, I just I just listened to I just listened to every episode this week," and we're yeah, we're like that's like a hundred hours. Like, are you okay? Is everything yeah. okay? That's yeah. And I I can't imagine someone listening to me talk that long. I mean, other than you know, my wife's done it, and that's. She's real sick of me too, so you know. But it's it. But that's what people want to do, and we even have people who listen to our episodes more than once, which is really cool. But it's just culture now. Yeah, it, I listened to this audiobook, and they were talking about um, this type of topic, but not in film rela- like uh, film terms at all. It's just uh, that we, um, just as human natures, will consume whatever is in front of us. Like if we have a potato chip bag and it's really small, we'll eat all the potato chips. If it's like twice the size, we'll still eat all the potato chips out of the bag unless you get to some huge, ridiculous sized potato chip bag. But even then, we'll eat a lot more potato chips than we would have normally otherwise eaten. I compare right. I compare it to cramming for a test for school or something. You know, right? So you the night before you take all this information in and the test comes and you get an A on it. But the day after you don't remember any of it because it went to short-term memory. Yeah. 
So have you really enhanced your life at all? Have you really taken anything in? Has it really improved you or changed you or had any kind of impact on your life? No. A lot of these shows, like, I watched Glow. Glow was great. I watched it all in like a day. But I can't remember one episode from the next. Don't care. It was fun. It was fine. But it didn't take anything away from it. Whereas something like Walking Dead, yeah. Game of Thrones, over the course of my, all this time, it's in, it's I'm immersed in it and it's kind of impacted me and that means something to me glow I couldn't care about it's gone it's, it's over but those things that right. I have to invest in mean something and I, I think that's part of what you're saying and I 100% agree I get the binge thing but for me man I love the anticipation I love the, the, the immersion in it so well I think even if you're paying attention like I think if you're maybe like the three of us and maybe many of your listeners and you really do care about film and all that shit um I think even if you're paying attention, most movies should be watched at least twice. You know what I mean? Like, even a movie you didn't like, I th- and not not some throwaway crap that you don't like, but let's say you watch, like, let's say you watch, for whatever reason, you don't like Citizen Kane. That's a movie you should probably watch again. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, it's, you, I think that, I think that great films need to be paid attention to, and I don't think you really know what you think about it until the second viewing. So... But that's just hard. It's hard to ask people to do that these days. Dude, it's hard to get anyone to listen to a fucking four-minute song. <laughs> Truth. Like, uh, I do this thing. So we, we're on a tour bus with the band I travel in. So we have a driver, and we drive through the night to our show and the, in the next city. And I, I do this game on the bus with my dudes where I'm like, we pass the phone around, and everyone play your current favorite song. And, you know, there's like six of us up there. And it's you learn a lot about the person, and it, you maybe even get turned on to a new song or whatever and these dudes and i'm guilty of it too all right i'm not saying i'm great at this but these dudes can't get through this four minute song without looking at goddamn facebook you know like it's just really hard to ask someone to pay attention to something it's harder than ever you know yep yep i totally agree um and so i think there's got to be like a we all got to start having a, a conversation about it, I think, because I think we're losing the ability to, to really take something in. 100%. And technology's not going to change. It's just going to get easier and easier and easier, you know? Yeah. So I think we got we to gotta deal with it within ourselves, you know? And I'm old. I'm used to the four, six, and ten channels. There were four channels when I was growing up. Twenty Fox Twenty Eight came in, so there were four things to watch. So all those things came in. You really, like I said, you were really invested in those and looking forward to those. Now there's so much out there. You know, Mash wouldn't exist today. <laughs> no one would care. It's too long. You're going to go into the binge watch thing. So it's uh, it's strange. Um, I as an older guy, I think it's sad. Uh, seeing my kids, especially sitting through, can't have dinner at home without people wanting to get on their phone. So. It's a whole social thing, I think. You know, people can't conversate with anyone anymore. It's just, what's well, on the phone? You, you, Ten years ago, they look on the bus, everyone's talking to each other. Now, no one's looking totally. at anybody. Um, on the Even in family reunions, no one's looking at anybody. And it's, it's truly sad. So that's my soapbox. I, I freaking hate technology. I want to go back. I'm so old. Well, no, I, I so I, I guess I'm about maybe seven years younger than you. And, uh, and I think, Frank, we're the same age. So yeah. we, we're one of the last kind of generations that, can remember like when I was in high school I didn't have a cell phone um when I was I didn't get the internet until I was in ninth grade so I still vividly remember a life before all of this and uh I'm tempted to say that I I was happier but um 
So I, you don't sound super old to me. I, I don't know what the demo of your fans are. We may sound like real crotchety old men here. But <laughs> you know what I you know what I hate about how it's seeped into film culture is like they did this on House of Cards a lot, and they did it in this Babysitter movie I was talking about earlier. Because they you know filmmakers have to integrate this text culture, right? So they mm-hmm. when people are texting in a film, they like put the text, they superimpose it onto the screen. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. 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 Oh my god! I looked at my wife. I was like, I fucking hate this. Like, it's it dates the movie. You know what I mean? Like, you can talk about a telephone, but you don't talk, don't talk about texting and Facebook and Wi-Fi if you're trying to make something that's going to last forever. You know what I mean? Like, it just it rubs me. Uh, I don't know. Uh, you tell you what, though, it is pervasive, and I I hate technology in all its forms. Really, I really do. But even me and my new movie I'm making, I. Almost for a split second, I got sucked into. You know what? If I put the text on the screen, it would solve a lot of my problems right now. And I fought yeah, against totally. it. I fought against it, and I actually ended up not doing it. But it's so easy to put in there, and it, it would have really been a help for the movies as far as connecting things. But I just couldn't do it. I end up writing a whole other scene and putting it in just to avoid doing it. So I get you, hundred percent get you. But man, technology is so pervasive; it's just hitting everything. Everyone gets it. So if you see it on the screen, it like ties you into the new culture, but. Ah, uh, man, it's tough. I 100% understand what you're saying. Well, it's it's funny that you mentioned that. I, I see your point. That's true. It, it's sort of like the new voiceover. Like, uh, yeah. Hmm, yeah. How do we how, how do we con- how do we connect the, the, these plot lines and you just have a voiceover and then they went here and here are the key things you need to know that we can't show you and Do you ever you know. do you ever watch a there's a YouTube channel called uh, Every Frame a Painting? No. Oh, oh, I, well there's I think there's a Twitter account that's it's like still shots of of cinematographers, but it looks like a painting. Is that what that is? No, no. It's this, this oh, guy okay. who does these like video essays, and he um, like breaks down like certain things. Like one, he did an, an entire episode on um, just this what we're talking about right now, texting in movies, and like how that's evolved, and how it's it's actually gotten better. Like the the way they figured out how to do it and display like, display like people communicating on a computer or a phone has evolved and, and just gotten a lot more smooth than it used to be when they first started. But it's just, I'd, I'd recommend checking it out if you haven't. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, but yeah, I just I mean, thought that of the stuff movie doesn't that, bother me because it's, it's, it's relevant for the time, like for the time. Yeah. I mean, that's true. Just like, I mean, oh, you know, look at eighties movies and you like, you're, you're going to see a Walkman yep. in it. It's the same thing. It's like, I don't know. It doesn't bother me as much. Yeah, that's true. I'm just a grumpy old man, dude. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you and further along. In 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 real life, like, I, I do hate, um, I, I mean, I just wish, I almost wish I could quit Facebook and uh, turn in my smartphone for a dumb phone and just go back <laughs> in a way well i got off facebook right before my daughter was born so i've been off for about four and a half years uh i've my happiness levels for sure went up for hmm. real and um occasionally my phone will die and i'll be unable to charge it and maybe the first hour of that it's like being a fucking heroin addict like it's <laughs> like withdrawals i'm panicky then that fades and then it's like oh it's okay that everyone can't get a hold of me for a few hours like that's okay like there's this weird detox that happens with my phone. Yeah, I feel I I definitely um, 
I think I could have handled going through high school in like most any other decade, but like I would hate to go through high school right now. With this just Can you imagine <laughs> having Facebook while you were in high school? Yeah. I feel like I might be wrong. I might just be looking at this through rose colored glasses. I feel like I would have gotten laid more. I really do. <laughs> I feel like I could have I feel like I could have I would have been braver in reaching out to folks and trying to trying to get connected to people if I had had Facebook. Sure, but things would have spread back, a lot back quicker then, too. <laughs> well, back, the walking dead apocalypse would have happened quicker. <laughs> Dude, back then you had to go talk to people, which t- t- as my mis- I'm just a, a classic misanthrope and so it's like I forgot how to do that. But back then that's what you had to do. You had to just literally go be like, "Hey, how are you? Hello." It's not just you, it's the whole like- I think it's the whole um, generation right now is forgetting how to talk to people. You don't see it. People aren't communicating, you know, as much as they used to. And as far as face to face, everything's all over the the internet. Where there's no real emotion, and a lot of their subtext is lost, and a lot of that um, interpersonal stuff is just. I think it's just gone. A lot of subtext and a lot of you know subtlety is just lost. So um, hopefully that won't be a huge thing, and it's not just me, you know, banging my can against the get off my lawn people, but. Um, you know, I do see that. Even with my kids, I see it. And it's something empathy is gone. I think it's sad. But uh, we shall see. I mean, you know, the, the people always bemoan the next coming generation. So hopefully they'll surprise us. Which is, I, I remember, you know, when, you, when you're dating someone, you know, back before cell phones were prevalent, like you would, you would call them, you know, ask for, you know, their parents would answer the phone, you know, because there's only one phone in and your the house. your heart would race a million miles a minute. And, and you would, you would talk to them Absolutely. for you know a half hour you know at, at night at like eight o'clock at night and that would be it and you'd be done and like that's all there was to it and now like i hear stories like like oh i went to dinner with my parents and like i didn't text my girlfriend and she thinks she's cheating on me now like i didn't answer <laughs> you in 30 minutes like that's ridiculous well let's be honest she probably is let's <laughs> true. face it true she probably is <laughs> Dude, when I, I remember when I was in seventh grade is when I first learned to play guitar. And the first song I ever learned was the song Glycerine by Bush. Oh, so good. It. And I called the girl I liked in school, who I did not talk to in school. We were not friends. Looked her up in the phone book, the yellow pages, or the, the white page. <laughs> and uh, I called her. Her mom answered. Her name is Shana. And I said, hey, th- is Shana there? Can I speak to Shana? Her mom's like, sure. Like, who is this? I said, well, it's Clint. Tell her it's Clint from school. So <laughs> Shana gets on the phone. She's like, uh, hello? And I was like, hey, Shana, it's Clint from school. She's like, uh, hi, what's up? And I was like, hey, I learned this song on guitar. I wanted to play it for you. <laughs> so I put the phone down. That's awesome. Played, played th- all three and a half minutes of Glycerine. Didn't sing it. Just played it. Which has got had to have sounded super boring. It's just a bunch of chugging <laughs> bar chords. And uh, picked up the phone. I'm like, "Hey, you still there?" She's like, uh, "Yeah." I was like, "Well, that was it. I just wanted to play that for you." She was like, "All right, thanks. Like, see you at school." Like that's the shit you had to do back then. Yes. That's pre Facebook stuff. That's real work. Yeah, it was. There's no happy ending to that, by the way. Like, we never really. That didn't change my standing with her whatsoever. That sucks. The big glycerine. That was the glycerine bid. But that was better than the cassette tape you had to make, man, which is what I did. You actually had some talent. It was some work for the girl. She should have put out. Oh, dude, I I, I love mixtapes. I wish mixtapes would come back. Truth. 
Well, what I can say is that if Facebook would have existed and you would have posted a Facebook Live video of you playing Glycerine, maybe somebody else go. would have been interested. Panties throwing at you. Well, and you know, it's weird. This whole segment's like turned into us being grumpy about technology, but <laughs> I will say it did it. it it did connect us, and it you know we've got these shows, and we've we've created a community of fans that like what we do, and you know that would have been impossible back then. So absolutely, I am great. I am grateful for it also, and and it, the music industry is really similar to the film industry in that it's well, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but you guys can tell me it's it's as easy as it's ever been to make a record now. You can make a record that sounds great. Yep, movies on your too. Computer in your in your house and um. You know, David Lynch and Quentin Tarantino, some of these guys are really big, you know, the the film versus digital debate. Mm -hmm. They're real, they're real principled about film. And it's really cool to see a a filmmaker like Sean Baker, who he he made this great movie called Tangerine and he filmed it all on an iPhone 4. Absolutely. I have friends who do the same thing and they look great. Well, they look great. It's awesome. There's, There's so much you can do that you couldn't do. And now... Filmmakers who otherwise didn't have funding or didn't have the right connections are able to make art. And so I think the trouble now is finding it all. It's like it's like a pebble in a waterfall these days. Yeah, I I remember um, like the projects I used to do in junior high and high school for class. Like I'd spend all this time like making these videos for these class projects. And I'd be super excited to show it to like the 20 25 people in class and I'd be like oh man tons of people saw it and like if I was really lucky like the teacher would like it so much that they would show like the other classes be like oh 100 people saw it and like now like there's video and the, you know I get you can you can almost like not even breathe on YouTube and or Facebook especially and get 100 people to see something you did and it's like no big thing yep. at all <laughs> yep I was in a I was at I we, we do a lot of flying, and if we're anywhere past, like, Illinois, we fly if we're going out west, and uh, so we, we're on planes a lot, and I was in a TS line, the TSA line the other day, and the TSA guy was, like, being nice and affable and talking to this kid behind me, and he's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, you want to be a doctor? And the kid literally said, I want to be a YouTube star. All my kids say the same thing. And, All of them. And I, I just... It made me. It made me sort of like existentially sad. Like it. <laughs> yep. It really fucking bummed me out that that's what that doctor, <sighs> lawyer, musician. He's like, no, I want to be a. YouTube. He said YouTube celebrity. Yep. Like holy shit! Wow. Yeah. Anyway, should we? Your fans hate me. I know it. <laughs> I can feel their <laughs> hatred. I can feel their hatred from the future permeating into me. We, we should just. Uh... You know, you're driving, listening to this podcast. Just take your phone, throw it out the window. Live a better life. Right. At, <laughs> at Clint. Throw it at Clint. <laughs> that just, that, uh, there's a Seinfeld episode where someone throws a, um, an organize, like, remember those pocket organizers, electronic organizers? Throws it out yep. the window and hits somebody in the head. That just reminded me of that. <laughs> 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 Uh, anyway, uh, we're way off topic. Um, <laughs> so this uh, um, this horror film, your this thirty one days of horror. Um, so I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of horror films, really at all. Um, and so for someone like me, for people who don't like horror films, 
what would you recommend that I watch? Um, well, uh, unlike other genres of film, there are uh, millions and millions and millions of subgenres. So yes. it's a different flavor. All right, you've got you've got now my favorite subgenre of horror is body horror, which is the the quintessential body horror film would be The Fly. Oh, I'm brilliant. talking about David Cronen- David Cronenberg's The Fly. Goldblum and uh, Davis. Gina Davis, one yeah, of my favorites. In which, and and it's and it's horrifying. Uh, David Cronenberg did a lot of body horror. Videodrome is another body horror. He did a great '90s film called Existence that kind of flew under the radar. So that's body horror. You've got supernatural horror, which would be your Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, d- demons and sh- shit that can't really happen in the real world. <laughs> and then you've got your sort of home invasion type serial killer. So it just Ugh. depends on what scares you. Like, you know, are you the kind of guy that like my wife is like this for example if it's too unbelievable like she doesn't like supernatural horror because she she's a my wife and I are very rational atheist people and so she just reasons herself out of it so she she's not scared of it yeah. but if it's a serial killer or home invasion she really she thinks this could really happen to me and that scares her which i find those kind of boring yes i'm not looking i don't really look for realism in my films i like for my films to take me to another world so where would you say you land on that spectrum? If you tell me that, I can recommend some stuff for you. Hmm. Probably. You know, I'm a fan of alien stuff, so maybe supernatural, but the more aliens. alien okay. stuff. Aliens. Well, yeah. Uh, uh, Ridley Scott's Alien, and then James Cameron did the sequel Aliens. Those are two phenomenal horror movies. The Thing is amazing. The Thing, which is John Carpenter, is amazing. There's a great space horror movie that came out in the 90s called Event Horizon, I would recommend. True. Okay. I haven't... If you like Aliens, Ali- A- the movie Alien is really really the way to go. I, sh- I should watch that. It I've holds been, up. I've been wanting to watch that for years and just never got around to doing it. This is it. not okay. You need to see that immediately. My first horror movie I ever saw was Alien. Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. That and Phantasm. I remember watching them when I was like four and five years old, and it messed me up for the rest of my life. But they were so fucking good, and nothing today even comes close to those two movies. Um, to me, anyway. My, my, first, my first memory when I came online as a human being was watching A Nightmare on Elm Street when I was three. My, <sighs> my grandparents just put me in front of the TV, and that's what, that's what came on. Your grandparents were horrible now, people. Well, they were just, they were like grandparents of that generation where they're like, just yep. put the kid, just, they didn't have anything to do with me when I was that little, you know, they were, I feel like I, I like, am always in my kid's face now. I'm like total helicopter dad, like every feeling she has is valid and, you know, like just so different than the way I was raised. Yeah. Um, but I'm with you. First horror movie day- I remember, the first memory I have is sitting my head between the seats of a cinema Staring at aliens scared out of my mind. My first memory is that 100%. I'm with you. And for better or worse, that's now we are who we are. Sweet. But you know, Frank, there's like the the classics are they all hold up. So I, you know, The Exorcist holds up. It's as good as it ever was. So okay, so top, Jaws holds top up. five horror movies that people should watch. Go. All right. All right. Uh, well, can we do maybe top five like mainstream, and then maybe top five maybe a little more under under the radar? Sure. I would say to, I would say top five would be Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, The Thing, 
Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Jaws. I would say maybe that's a good top five. What do you What do you think? Do you, my other horror nerd over there? Is that, that a good me? top five? Oh God, Jaws is amazing. I wouldn't even have thought of Jaws. Jaws is one of the best movies ever made. And just it's, yeah, it's, it's the, sure. it again. It goes back to the anticipation of the whole thing. They draw it out. The it starts out there the whole time messing with you. It's just it's there. It's underlying. Got to well, wait. It, and it completely changed beach culture. Like if you if, if you kind of <laughs> contextualize it, it it really it really fucked a lot of people up and scared a lot of people in the real world. <laughs> you know, and you know it's it's our boy Spielberg. It's like it's like a young Spielberg. It's great. Yeah. Oh, so good. I'm so mad at the uh, Jaws. If I were gonna name five sort of under the radar movies, uh, I I would. There's a great French horror movie called Martyrs. Oh yeah. That it's real extreme. Yes. I don't. I would, Frank, I would not recommend it for you. It's 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 not a horror horror 101 movie. It's it's real extreme. In fact, the the sub sub genre that that movie is usually classified under is called French extremist horror. So. But it's a great movie. I'd recommend that. It's a great movie called uh, The Skin I Live In that actually Antonio Banderas is in. It's an Italian film. A dude... So Antonio Banderas is like a top surgeon. A dude rapes his daughter. And it's a revenge film about that. He captures this dude, turns this dude into a woman, and then falls in love with her. Jeez. (laughs) Yeah. Now, when I heard that premise, I was like, I have to watch this. I don't know if you're wired that way, but my, my wife was like, I don't ever want to watch that. <laughs> but I was like, I have to see this movie. It's called The Skin I Live In. There's another good movie called High Tension. It's another French film. It's oh, actually tremendous. showing this cool little art theater right by my house. Cannibal Holocaust should be seen. The filmmakers actually went to jail because the movie is so real that people thought that they actually killed people in this movie. <laughs> So they, they didn't go to jail. What, they were on what, trial. What year was that? 70-something. Cannibal Holocaust was 79. Yeah. And it went to trial? They couldn't just produce yeah, production film. documents like, hey, we filmed a movie. I think that I think they that's what they ended up having to do. But let's huh. see. I just looked it up. It's so realistic. Because it's, it's filmed like a documentary. And this is one thing. I'm not a big found footage guy. That's Ugh, another genre God. that you might like. I don't know. I, Paranormal Activity, I did love. And I'm also now biased because Katie's a good friend of mine. But I think that shit got super duper played out. Yeah. I I did watch um, I did watch Blair Witch Project in the theater. And really thought it was like totally unique and something different. I really dug it. And then like... Like I stopped watching horror films in like 2003, and like you know the the ones that came after that were like, oh, you're just trying to play off of its success, and it just it's not working. Like be original. Do you, uh, as a filmmaker, do you watch a lot of movies? Um, not nearly as much as other people do. Yeah. What about you, Adam? I'm kind of the same way. I've gotten 
pre-kids, I saw every horror movie ever made. But since the kids came involved, my golf game's gone to shit, and I haven't watched very many more horror movies at all. I try to do it. My wife, thank God, I met her um, in college, and we fell in love over watching The Toxic Avenger, which I'd never seen. But it's still kind of a horror movie. Oh, yeah. Um, but I knew, I was like, if this girl can hang out with watch Tex- Toxic Avenger, she's 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 a keeper. So thank God, you know, we're in our 40s, and we still do a horror movie every weekend. Um, so we try to do oh, a new cool. one every week. So it's, it is awesome. Although we tend to regurgitate some of the same ones because we love them so much. Evil Dead 2 is seen a thousand times. Friggin' love it. The Fly, as you mentioned, oh, right. one of my top five. It's definitely in there. Cronenberg's a genius. It's great. So, yes, but not as many as I should. Not as many as I should. I just saw Hush, um, just trying to catch up on some of the classic new ones. And It Follows just caught mm-hmm. that one. Two it, Ones I let go through the system and let it filter out, which is garbage and which is good. If I start hearing it from my friends who, like, uh, i got some director friends in town that go through and watch everything, they are now my filter. <laughs> they filter out to me, don't watch this, watch this. So now I catch the really right. good stuff, which is great. Um, but, you know, you got to wallow through the muck sometimes to pick out a diamond. So you, you kind of watch some of the – if you miss some of the garbage, you miss some stuff too, so – yeah, I, I yeah I agree. I mean, I, th- I just think as the older you get, your time, you know, your time gets spread out more. It's just a f- kind of a fact of life. And so that Brady Sinell's podcast, which I'm unaffiliated with, by the way, I just love it. Um, which he's actually been inactive for like six months now, which is a bummer. But hmm. I get a lot of book and film recommendations just from hit- listening to his podcast. Sure, because I, I, I don't like trust him blindly, but I've just realized that our tastes align so much that you know he'll turn me on to to books and movies. So. I think that's kind of the way to find good stuff. Because I'll tell you this, the the curation system for Netflix or whatever, I don't trust that shit. Hmm. Yeah. That that they've let they've let me down too many times. I don't know how those algorithms work, but you know because if you watch a certain amount of movies they're like, "Oh, because you liked The Fly, you'll like whatever." That that doesn't really cut it for me. I don't know if you guys have dipped into that at all. I get you absolutely. Yeah, I I know what you're talking about. I, also I, I do work, find I, I, I do find ever... stuff that I like because of it, but it's also like show me something different. Like, <sighs> right. I'm on this really cool website called iCheckMovies.com, and they have all these great lists that you can sort of at your own pace work through. So. I, I took it real serious last last year. I watched like 300 movies last year, and uh, just working my way through these various lists. So for anyone that's trying to do that, I guess though most of your listeners are people who make films, I guess. But they also, I'm I'm kind of an exception where I don't watch like most. I, I would say the majority of people who make films do watch a lot of films. Okay. Where is me like you know someone like references a film or two for an upcoming project like I'll just go and watch those films at that point. One thing that I that I, I read someone talk about doing that I did last year is is watching an entire director's filmography, mm-hmm. and I watched all of Brian De Palma's films last year in sequence, which was a really fun challenge and it was interesting to see like a body of work unfold that way. Yeah, I think Brandon. Uh did it or was doing it maybe still doing it and there's some you know there's some rough ones in there but it's just interesting to i think like what adam was saying like with families and time crunch like for me i kind of have to have goals like that that's what kind of keeps me invested in it you know 
Yeah, watching and the, the Thirty One Days of Horror is like that too. It's like, oh, well, I, I'm trying to. My goal is to watch Thirty One horror movies, so it kind of keeps you on on track. Yeah, yeah. Watch with purpose. Cool. All right, if you're gonna do a binge, another binge, when I would direct, I would just suggest uh, Paul Verhoeven. His uh, his list of movies is friggin' amazing. You got RoboCop in Butters- there. You got Hollow Man in oh, okay. there. You got Starship Troopers in there. It ranges across all different stuff but it's all got some weird shit in it it's all got some um it's just got great twists on it i mean like it's just amazing stuff so paul verhoeven's my guy robocop is just so freaking good and starship troopers yeah, i thought I was amazing and hollow man had some great stuff in it so hey uh that's my dude right now i'm looking at okay cool i haven't dipped back into robocop in a while i need to so good yeah i think i might need to check out starship troopers again i watched it one time when it first came out and I was like, oh, it's good. And kind of just forgot about it. But so you're much. saying it, Alex, that's his favorite movie. So maybe I need to watch it again. So good. Doogie Howser's in it, man. <laughs> All right. Um, well, there you go. Well, Clint, it was, uh, it was really great chatting with you. I'm glad you're able to, to come on the show. Um, yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Um, where can people uh, find out more about you, um, your music, um, and uh, your podcast. Uh, well, if you're interested in what I do personally, um, I have a website, clintwellsmusic.com, and it's got all my crap on there, tour dates and songs I've written and all that stuff, if you're interested in that. If you're a Metallica fan or a music fan and you're a podcast fan, then my podcast is called Metal Up Your Podcast, all Metallica, new episode every Monday, me with my friend Ethan Luck, and... Uh, you can find that on iTunes and your podcast app. We're, we're on anything that plays podcasts. We're on that. We do have a website, metal up your podcast, uh, metal up your podcast.com. But no one ever really goes to that because people just find it on their phone. So that's where you can find us. Cool. Um, real, real quickly. Um, two things I noticed when I was checking out your, um, site before, are you still, um, associated with, um, Earthquaker devices. I am associated with them. They. I just want to give a digital shout out to them. They're really great people over there, and they're an Ohio-based company. I'd yeah, they. Uh, uh, for your listeners who may not know what that is, it's a, a guitar pedal effects company who have carved out a really cool niche in the pedal world, which is hard to do these days. And uh, they make really affordable, cool, bizarre-sounding effects. And uh, they've they've thrown a few pedals at me and helped me out and gotten me out of binds and yeah they're friends of mine yeah they're in Akron right yep they are yeah yeah they uh, they Shout sponsored uh, they sponsored some episodes of uh, another podcast I do and they're just oh cool super rad people yeah um, and then and uh, the other thing was um, noticed you know we didn't have time to get into this and you even brought up um, working in constraints but. Um, I really dug, I don't know if you're still doing it, but on your site you mentioned that you were doing, um, you get together with some groups of friends and you like write a song that has to contain like a certain lyric or theme and, and you, have to, yeah. you have to do it in a certain amount of time. And that, that really, that really um, plays to me because like I like working um, on uh, on films with constraints, uh, such as like the 48 hour film festival, that, that thing's always... Um, really interests me just because 
you know, you're, you're working inside of a box and how creative can you be? Well, what, what the song game is, and we can kind of, I'll make this kind of quick, but so I'm in a songwriting group you, with this guy named Bob Schneider and there's maybe 15 of us and, and we, every week it. we have a, we have a phrase and the phrase has got to be in the song. You got to write a song a week. If you miss two weeks in a row, you're out. And the song doesn't have to be a masterpiece, doesn't have to win a Grammy. It's just really more about doing the work. And so the, the idea is, the myth is you can really only make art when you're inspired or when you have a muse or when you're tortured or whatever that bullshit is. But the truth is, if you're an artist, you're a craftsperson and you have to be able to, to work your craft. And so the challenge for us as songwriters is we may be on planes or in buses or in hotel rooms, but you just got to do the work. And so it applies really to any, any art form. Yeah, it's just I, more about getting the muscle of doing the work despite being uninspired. You know what I'm saying? I totally agree. I, I think that's a, a great thing. How many people are in the group? Uh, it, it goes in and out. Um, uh, it just depends. Because if you miss two weeks, you're out. And it's not like you're out forever. You can come back. But they, there kind of has to be that hard line to really motivate you to do it. But it's me, Bob Schneider, uh, Jason Mraz. Patty Griffin was in it for a while. Um Steve Poltz, it's it's the, it's kind of an evolving cast, but I've I've actually been in the song game for seven years now. Nice. So, uh, you know, we've all written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of songs. Again, not all of them great, but some of them are pretty good. And it's just a tool. It's just a tool to to get better at what we do. Hopefully, that's what we're all trying to do. So, yeah, I I definitely appreciate the fact that you guys actually do stick by a rule and kick people out. <laughs> well, that part's actually crucial. Yep. You know, like that's, it's, it, it's like unpleasant. I started one in Nashville because Bob's based in Austin. I started one here and I had to quit it because I, I just couldn't kick my friends out of this fucking group. I just couldn't be that guy. Yeah. But Bob, but Bob's pretty good at it. He's pretty diligent. So I'll let him be the bad guy. Yeah. And I sure as I've never been kicked out because I, I need that incentive to work and I love to work. So like you said, you love to work. Yep. Cool. All right, well, we've kept you long enough. We'll let you get back to the writing or watching or whatever you're going to do next today. I'm going to watch Starship Troopers. <laughs> Good call. You cannot go wrong. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. It was really nice chatting with you. I really appreciate it. You too. Plant pleasure. Thank you, sir. Cheers. Cheers. What a nice guy. Yeah, he was cool. Very cool. Um, I know it's been a while. This, um Kind of reaching the uh, the max of what our episodes normally are. Are you good for a little bit? I am at your disposal, sir. Okay. And listeners, um, if you don't mind sticking around, um, we promise to make it worth your while. We're gonna. We promised you that we'd be talking about production horror stories this month, and uh, so we have some of that coming up. Um, if you don't want to listen to it, just um, you can hit skip or just hit pause and come back to it the following day. I know this is going to be a super long one. Um, but just bear with us. Um, can you pass me the bourbon? I am out. I can't. It is bullet bourbon. It is awesome, and I appreciate it. Yep. So, Adam. Yes, sir. Who are you? That's a great question. Um, I am Adam Clevenger. I am a local actor and filmmaker in Dayton, Ohio. So, filmmaker, what um, what type of stuff have you done? 
wow, uh, he's jumping right in. He has horror stories, and I'm like, I, I've got to make my fame as a podcaster as, as a train wreck. Um, uh, my first project, my only project I've ever done in my life is a full feature film, which is called Severed Ties, which is coming out in 2018. I'm very excited about it. So we kind of glossed over that. Your first project was my a feature. My first project was a feature. Um, let's get into it, folks. Uh, if you're listening to this for product hor- uh, production horror stories, you came to the right place. Because um, I am a train wreck in personal life, and I took that right into my filmmaking career. Uh, I uh, got a bug up my butt to make a movie, and sure enough, I'm like, I'll just go ahead and make a movie. And this was my first project. I'd never touched a camera before, never edited a thing in my life. Didn't know anything about sound, lighting, any of that stuff. Um, I had directed and I had produced and I had written for theater. So I knew that area. I'm like, it'll be a great transition into film. (laughs) And let me tell you something, a little bit different. So um, uh, if you ever want to learn anything about mistakes, I was going to write a book and make my million dollars there. But if you want to learn about mistakes, hey, learn from mine. I'm here for you for the foreseeable future. Uh, Let's let's slow down a second. So you... Never picked up a camera. No. Never edited anything. No. Didn't know anything about lighting. No. Nothing about sound. No. But you thought it would be a good idea to make a feature film. I didn't think it would be a good idea. I thought it was an idea. Um, to be fair to myself, I had worked with a director in town called Eric Whiting, who's an amazing director, uh, who also collaborates with Henry Kudo, who had worked with quite a bit. Both amazing directors. And um, I'd worked with them, and I decided to write... A project um, for a friend of mine to direct and he was busy and could not do it and I was running out of time so I'm like you know what my friends made it look so easy directing how hard can it be so I just jumped right in and uh, it sounds so naive and stupid now it's so funny how I tell you what I it's been a rough project but I've grown so much I've learned so much and I'm sure you will too but um, please folks please Go in, know what you're doing, because you'll, you'll, you'll save yourself from aging 10 years on a project. So you, you saw these other directors do it. They make it look easy. They do. Like, how hard can this be? How hard can this be? I'm an actor on a set. I get to say funny lines or scary lines, and they have their lights set up, their camera set up. It's just a camera set up and lights set up. It's just, just this is easy. You just um, point the camera and shoot. You point the, the camera ca- and record. shoot. Yeah. And don't worry about the sound. The sound is magical. It's just going to be perfect just by magic. Don't worry about that. It'll be fine. But you probably had, you know, at least tens of thousands, maybe $100,000 to make this project. Sure. Sure, sure. Tens and tens of thousands of pennies. Um, I was very fortunate. You know, I'm very fortunate. Uh, at the time when I started making the movie, I uh, had a really good job that I, the money really wasn't a problem. And I had some friends who... Um, believed in the project, believed in me. Um, I hope like, rightfully so. The project, as much as it's been a, a struggle, um, just because you know, I'm going in learning as I go, um, the project itself has been great, mainly because I've had great people helping me out along the way. And If you're going to go into a movie, don't do it yourself, um, especially if you don't know what you're doing. Have some people around you, and thank God I did. I had some people who knew what they were doing um, and helped me out through the beginning stages of it. So are you comfortable talking about the, the budget at all? Sure. Um, I had originally slated for about 3000 for the budget for the movie. Uh, that mainly ballooned. And they always tell you this. That it's going gonna, it's gonna to double no matter what you do. You're, if I ever use budget for it, it's going to double. And it basically did. Um, I had some people put in about a fourth of it. The rest of it was on me. And a lot of that money came not just from equipment, 
the things you don't think about along the way. You got to pay transportation costs and gas costs to get where you're going if you're doing location shoots. Um, if you're going to take care of your people, you got to make sure you have money for your food, and that mm -hmm. adds up, you know. And I take care of my people. If I'm going to do one thing for you, ask any of my cast. Um, one thing I did is make sure they are fed well, and that costs money, and that, it's well worth it though, because they, my cast, busted their butt, and any kind of. Um, People have come in who are uh, notoriety. You want to make sure you pay them, take care of them, and uh, any kind of special things like nudity. Make sure you're taking care of your folks and paying for that. So um, all those things came into play. Um, but as my, and this is one of the main flaws I had in my movie. Um, it goes back to what I was talking with earlier was, you know, with family and everything else. Um, I, I needed to spread out my production to make sure I was taking care of my family and friend, my family and my wife, and make sure I was taking care of my um, job obligations. So I spread out my shooting project, which was a nightmare. I would not suggest ever doing that. Um, if you can make your film in a couple weekends, do it. Because over the course of doing a project for a long time, which I had to do, all of a sudden your shooting schedule goes from four days to 10 to 12, and every time you have people brought in, you're paying 200 bucks at a time to feed them, and that adds up. Um, plus people get pregnant, and people get tattoos, and people get haircuts, and uh, next thing you know, your your product has issues there too. So um, yes, your budget will definitely expand the longer you take your project and go with it. So yes, definitely shoot tight and shoot quickly. And so with this, $3,000 budget, which yes. um, I imagine it's a horror film on that budget. Yeah, sort of. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to make this movie is I had seen all the horror movies. And I got tired of seeing the same thing. It's always, for God's sake, it's always the same five or six people. You have the virgin, you have the the jock, you have the outsider, you have the friggin' slut, and you have all that stuff, and it's the same thing every time with the stereotypes. And I got sick of seeing it, and I'm like, I'm gonna make something different, and I wanted to. Um, I'm a, a fan of, huge fan of Robert Rodriguez, huge fan of Quentin Tarantino, huge fan of uh, Alfred Hitchcock. So when I saw my movie, I'm like, I'm going to make it different. I'm going to make you care about the characters. I'm going to give you the first 40 minutes where you're getting involved in the characters, get involved in where they're at, get involved in locations, care about them. Cause I kept, I kept seeing these horror movies and I just saw a podcast not too long ago. I was talking about the fall of horror movies in which they fell because the killers were so much more interesting than the people that are killing. You saw Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddie, was interesting. He had a character. The people who were killing didn't. They were just stereotype cardboard cutouts you'd seen mm -hmm. a thousand times before. And I didn't want any part of that. I wanted to have the characters you cared about so when things happened to them, it mattered. So yes, it was, I wouldn't say it's a horror story. There are horrific things that happen in it. Um, absolutely horrific things that happen in it. The first scene's horrific, and it uh, takes the time to get to know characters, and then gets back to horrific after that. So, yes, I, some people call it a horror movie. I call it more of a revenge drama, a little slice of life. Okay. And um, with that budget, I'm just totally guessing because I don't know a ton about your movie, and sure. I wasn't involved at all. Um, I imagine with that, you, most of that money is going towards like food and props and stuff and like nobody's really getting paid to work on that 100% towards food a lot of it was towards food I'd say at least half of it honestly because I have to feed people well um, props man and I'm a new filmmaker so a lot of it went towards actual equipment my camera had to be purchased my lighting equipment had to be purchased 
Um, the sound recorder had to be recorded. The um, the microphone had to be purchased. So just overhead alone with the camera and all that stuff was a thousand. It just gets started. Um, luckily, thank God, we don't do film these days. Everything's digital. Mm-hmm. So we had a twenty-five dollar, you know, little thirty-two gigabyte. Uh, card to go in your camera and you're good to go and thank god most filmmakers have that luxury these days i know i definitely needed it but yeah did you from the sound it, it sounds like you're saying one 32 gig card were you oh no, i had more than that okay good yes no you have to have backups and people have backups um no i because what happens is uh, i had a 32 gig card all of a sudden it was saying it not only was a full but it was it was saying that the, the picture stopped immediately. It, it was just the card was faulty and it wasn't working. Or you get twitchy things where the card won't work with the camera and there's no rhyme or reason to it sometimes. So make sure you have backups for those things. Yes, I ended up having five and thank God I did because one night two or three of them went dead at the same time. It was very, very strange. So um, I imagine you're not, not, you weren't using name brand cards then? No, no, no. I absolutely do. Um, I used, oh boy, what are those? Sandisks, absolute Sandisks, and some PNYs. But Class 10s, um, I was smart enough to go into this with some with some intelligence, not a whole lot. Um, some things I, I knew to ask. The problem is, for anyone who's making a movie, is a lot of times what you find out is you jump into this, you don't know what questions to ask. You don't know what you don't know. A lot of things I didn't know, I didn't know. Um, Luckily, thank God, I had some friends who did know, and they were <laughs> jumped out there and said, "You need to know this." And um, I asked some of the right questions, and one of them was, "If you're going to do it, make sure you have at least a Class Ten card that will take the memory in fast enough." So, so back to your budget, real quick. Yes, um, you said uh, you things usually take twice as much. Yes, have you seen that happen in your film yet? Yes, hundred percent. Um, and a lot of these problems you're going to find, folks, are all on me. It's not on anybody else. It's all on me. Um, you know, you budget for one thing. Next thing you know, you're, you're, uh, you have reshoots or you have this happen, this happen, this happen, and everything expands. Because you, you figure in, yeah, I need equipment. Sure, absolutely, I need any equipment. But little things pop in like, oh, yeah, this girl, she wants to come in. She needs to get paid for gas. You need to take care of that. Pay for the gas to come in. That you didn't figure in. Um, the food costs, you, know, you figured some, but your shoe goes a little longer. You need to figure that in. And it just starts adding up, adding up, adding up, adding up. Uh, so, and props there too. You, you, your script, you got to make sure you look through all your script before you do anything. Look through your script. And I would put dollar signs beside all of it. You know, if you're going to say, this person looks at a severed head, well, you better put next to that how much that severed head's going to cost. You know, Oh, anybody factoring their blood, too? Because guess what? Blood's not a cheap either. You can make it on your own, but it adds up, too. And that blood goes fast. So make sure everything you and your script, you put next to it, dollar sign this, dollar sign this, dollar sign this. And then do yourself a favor and double those numbers. Because all of a sudden, Amazon fees, you got to add in your shipping costs. you got to add in this work. Oh, and by the way, you've got a special effects person to pay. Guess what? They charge money on their end, too. And their time. So everything, double it. It will, it will save you in the long run. And you'll say, oh, gosh, I don't have money for this. Guess what? Look at your script and take out what you can't afford. And that'll save you a lot of headaches in the future. I didn't do that because I'm an idiot. So, And I wanted to have the movie away. I wanted it to ball-headed. And I, and I ran through a lot of walls for that. And I'm going to have to pay for that later in credit card fees. But, hey, um, Listen to me on that. Make sure you go through your script entirely and make sure you put in that. And then go ahead. Hey, on top of that, gas, food, little things that you replace. The lights in your halogen lamp go out. 
got to pay for those. You know, your card dies in your SanDisk, got to pay for that. And all of a sudden, your batteries and your camera die, got to get new ones. So just make sure if you're going to make a movie that you look at it and you can say, absolutely, I can afford this. Because if you can't, you start cutting corners. And that shows up on film every time. I know on mine, I can tell. I said, I didn't do this. It looks like crap. And I've ended up cutting that scene because I didn't do it right in the first place. So you've got to prepare properly. How much of your budget's left? I imagine your film's not done yet. <laughs> How much of your budget's left for uh, post-production, marketing? Well, luckily, post-production is all me. Um, I'm doing the editing and sound mixing. And, oh, God, you know what? One thing I will say, if you're a new filmmaker out there, make sure you use your networking. I was very, very fortunate to get involved with a group called I-71 Pictures in Columbus, Ohio. And their director, uh, their main um, their owner got me in contact with a group called the Wexner Center that works at OSU. Um, it's a local uh, Columbus State. Um, I'm sorry, Ohio State University has a little offshoot called the Wexner Center, and that's a film school. And they, for some reason, will work with first-time film directors to help them get their first movie made. And they're going to help me on my final edit and my sound. And we'll talk about sound whenever you want. But sound is <laughs> sound. Make sure you listen to sound, folks, and pay attention to sound. No pun intended. Um, but the Wexner Center um, is actually going to take uh, give me a week to go in there and work with their amazing editors and help fix my movie. So if you're having problems, talk to people. Network. I just went to a Nightmare Film Festival in Columbus and got to network with all these new filmmakers and met with people and got to bounce ideas off of them. You need to have a support system. 100% need to have a support system um, be able to bounce ideas off of. So um, I know we're off topic, but I definitely wanted to get that out there. So don't go into this alone. Make sure you have people there to support you and make sure if you're having problems, look out. Google. Whenever I, I had a friend here, Henrik Kudo is a great director. Whenever I asked him a question, he's like, did you check Google first? And I'd say, no. He's like, check Google. And they'll have every answer you want to know. Lighting issue, sound issue this issue and they'll walk you through it so use your resources wisely that um the wexner center thing sounds like a good resource for oh. for first-time people um do they so they don't make a distinction first-time short film or first-time feature apparently not no because this is my first time in anything so it's just a first-time project yes period so why didn't why didn't you start with a short film first it's a great question. I was definitely told to do that, and I would, could not tell anyone. People told me the same thing. Strongly enough, do a short film first. I was told to do that, and I didn't. The reason I didn't is because I didn't have a short story to tell. I had a feature film I wanted to tell, a longer story I wanted to tell. I had some locations I wanted to use, some actions I wanted to use. And I had written a story for a different for this project that was for a different director, and they couldn't do it. And I said, this is the story I want to tell. This is what I want to do. Um, and again, it goes back to not being smart enough to know what I didn't know. Um, hopefully, you'll listen to me and know what you don't know. Maybe you do know. But uh, if you're going into a movie and you're directing it and you don't know how to direct actors, you don't understand the idea, the importance of an insert shot or a cutaway. You don't understand how the sound or the boom mic needs to go. You don't understand where the lighting needs to be. You don't know how to understand how to schedule people, how to schedule your special effects, how to do all that things. Um, you're going to have some real problems and you learn those skills on doing short features and short things. You'll learn, oh, my sound sucks on a 15 minute feature. Guess what? You'll know in your bigger movie not to do that. I have friends tell me all the time, you made your, reserv you made your Pulp Fiction before you made Reservoir Dogs and they're a thousand percent right. 
Reservoir Dogs is a one location mainly shoot mm-hmm. with acting. That's easy. Do that. Do that. Um, I had a 200 page script, which is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And it's all over the state of Ohio. 200 pages. 200 page script. Uh, it was just too long. And so I went to Columbus. And I, I filmed in Toledo. I filmed in Dayton. I filmed in Cincinnati. I filmed in Trotwood. I filmed in Enid, in, in Ohio. Your, was your script also full of uh, like montages and stuff like that? It got worse, yes. Uh, <laughs> as it got on, I got, I'm doing it. It's funny you mentioned that. Uh, I didn't have montages until my... I don't know why I did this. So the Wexner Center... Already a huge script, right? All these locations. I'm still in the middle of working on things. And the Wexner Center came through and said, oh, we will help you with your sound mix. And I'm like, great. We can't do it until March. I mean, this is October. This is actually June back then. I'm like, well, I have months to fill. You know, my movie's pretty good, but I like closure. I'm a Lord of the Rings guy. So I saw Lord of the Rings. Everyone complains about the endings. I'm like, I want more endings of Lord of the Rings. I want more. I would, like love my closure. So I'm like, my movie could use a little bit of closure. Let's write an epilogue of this thing. Already 200 pages. Let's write an epilogue. My five-page epilogue turned into a 37-page opus because I like to write more than I like to direct. So, um, so you made it harder on yourself. So I made it harder on myself. And in that, I'm like, what I want to do is I, I love... Dawn of the Dead, the new one with Sarah Pauli and Ving Rhames, like 2001, that Dawn of the Dead. And I love the opening and I love the ending so much. It's got the, the credit sequence with the flashes of the dead people everywhere. And I thought, this is great. I'm going to do this. I'm going to epilogue just be things over top of my credits. Well, I got such good actors and I wanted to make sure they're taken care of. I kept writing more and more stuff for them. And next thing you know, I have a 37 page magnum opus with a montage in it. I'd never so done a montage did, before. Did you, you said you had written a little bit before going oh, yeah. into this. Were you aware of the, the like one page per minute? Yes. Type of thing? Yes. But you wrote 200 pages anyway. I did. Well, originally, right, for your no. first feature. Uh, yes, right. So originally, and everyone warned me not to do this, but I'm like, you know what? I know what I'm doing. I, I thought, this is what I really thought, people. I know what I'm doing. I, I'm going to make something original and new and amazing. This is, this is truthful. This is what I wanted to do, make something new, original, and amazing, something different. Because I'd seen all the garbage. I was sick of seeing it. I wanted to make something different. And I did. But I was warned, is it, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And uh, is it a market for it? Do people want to see it? And that really wasn't my concern. I wanted to make something for me, something I would want to see. And that's what I've done. It's a $6,000 self-project that hopefully everyone else will enjoy too. Um, but yeah, no, I, I ended up making it longer because I, I think writing, like I said, originally I went into this writing and writing is my skill. So, and I'm really happy with the writing. The writing I think is really good. Um, but the directing that and getting that down and editing that down to a certain point is going to be a challenge. I'm actually going to work that down. The festival circuit who I've talked to quite a bit said they want their movies at 90 minutes. So I'm like, mine's at about 200, two minutes, two hours and 45 minutes. I'm actually going to cut it in half. And actually a lot of people have asked me to make it two movies instead of one. And it would be great, but I didn't write it as two movies. I wrote it as one movie. And there's no real good cutoff point in the middle to make it make sense. So a lot of things to think about, folks. It's, I get, we're going to go to the train wreck version of it. I love my movie. I think it's great. Hopefully you'll enjoy it. But don't make a 200-page script, um, especially for your first movie. Or don't do it at all, actually. Um, yeah, I, I always suggest and tell people when they're interested in filmmaking, like, Go do something short, mm-hmm. super short, actually, mm-hmm. like two minutes long, one minute long. Just, Absolutely. Just do a few of those. You'll figure out like the most common big mistakes you're going to sure. make. Regard, like 
I don't care who you are. You're going to make tons of mistakes the first time. Absolutely. Mistakes the first time you do it. You're going to figure those out in these junk throwaway first projects that you do. Yep. Instead of jumping into a feature. And like, but I see, I see people do it all the time, jumping into features for their first project. Yep. With no experience. And like me, I'm over here. Like I kind of enjoy seeing people (laughs) do that. (laughs) Like I'm pulling out. Like I like, I, I, you scan through Facebook like oh I'm going to I'm going to make my first movie and I've never done anything before I'm like okay popcorn <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's how I got in this feature folks I always thought I'd be on a podcast because I was famous and did something well no no it's I was actually got on this because I have uh, production nightmares but um, Th- there's a learn yeah there, there's a so there's a I, I like watching shows uh, reality TV shows along the same vein like um, there's an old show called Renovation Realities, mm-hmm. which like people like it showed that I could, I could literally make the same mistakes like that we're talking about that you're making with film. Sure, I can make them with home improvement. Like, like oh yeah, I could totally. I've never done a kitchen before, but I could totally like take a weekend off and 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 renovate my kitchen. And like that's what the show's about. And you can imagine like the same type of stuff. Sure, happens. Tons of mistakes. Sure. Like people like oh this is actually a lot harder than I thought it was. And, sure. And like it's just it's so enjoyable to watch, not because it's like, not only because it's like it's actually entertaining, but also like I learn a lot of things. I'm like, hmm, maybe I shouldn't do my kitchen sure. Sure. right away. Maybe I should replace some doorknobs first. And so it, it's it's really helpful. And I, I think you being willing to come on and talk about this sure. will be helpful. And in that vein, um, yes. so you said with your budget, you took a lot of that in and bought some equipment. What did you sure. what did you what did you use for this movie? The wrong things, because again, it goes back to not knowing what you should know. Um, I'd seen enough to think I knew what I was doing, but I didn't. Um, I ended up buying some light stands that my friend uh, came on set and said, these are too small. And he was right. And I was like, oh, you just put them on top of boxes. Well, guess what? You don't have boxes all the time. Too small and not. Too short. Not They're like too, three yeah. feet tall, right? Yep. They weren't the tall ones. I'm like, I can just put them on top of tables. Who cares? Well, you don't always have tables near you. You got to make sure you have the right light table. It's, it's stupid stuff like that, right? So, and I've overcome it, but it's been an actual arduous process and nightmare. So, just learn from me, folks. This is what I'm here for. I, I'm debasing myself for you. Um, make sure you go into it and ask the right questions. Light stands. Get five feet tall ones at least. So you can put them down on people or up on people. You can use you make, make sure you have articulating heads so you can move them up and down. Get that. Don't use cheap ones. Um, make sure you get the right sound equipment. That's why I ran into a buzzsaw. I, uh, road let's, equipment let's is great. slow down for a second. Okay. Wait. Um, a lot of our people, are, uh, listeners, are gearheads. Okay, did, great. What, what did you buy? What did I buy as far as light stands? E- equipment. Okay, great. Um, well, I, my friend Henrik had a um, had filmed on a, a movie, Babysitter um, Massacre, and he used a T3i, Canon T3i camera. So I purchased that from him. It worked out great for me. That's been wonderful. Um, light stands. I could just got normal. You couldn't have got cheaper light stands. But I thought, hey, I can just put them on top of anything. I'll be fine. Uh, and that was a mistake. So make sure you get the right ones. I can't even tell you what they were. They were probably just three foot tall, $5 light stands. I thought it would be fine for anything. And that became a problem as I went along. Um, as far as lights go, couldn't afford like the big uh, soft lights, right? Like $300 ones that light you really soft to make your movie look great. I ended up getting these LED things with filters, which actually worked okay. Only because, and uh, only because I had a friend of mine, Noah Shane, who was had filmed in... Um, 
L.A. on a few movies and a lot of porn and uh, knew how to light things. So he was able to make magic out of those. It's just LED lights. I end up so like we're talking about like Amazon, like yeah, cheapo. Uh, L- Amazon, El Cheapo versions. Um, uh, I was advised to get a couple of those big halogen lamps. Work good if you bounce them right. How many lights did you buy? Uh, four LED sets and then a, um, well, four LED individuals and then a, like, just a workshop big red halogen 500 watt times two big lighting kit. Like an actual work light. Yes. Okay. Which apparently I learned later on were actually made for a film in the first place. They got taken away and now they're bright and brought back. So it was very hot. Okay. Um, cam- let's jump back to the camera. You said sure. T3i. Mm-hmm. Um, I've used that camera before. Um, Super solid workhorse, workhorse, workhorse camera. Sure. Um, okay, fine. Um, lens had what two, I, but here's the thing. Let's go back. Let's be truthful here. We're going to be truthful here. Everyone needs to learn from my mistakes. Uh, it had the kit lens on it, which was a zoom lens, which I used a lot. The eighteen to fifty-five. Yes, you are correct. See, you know your stuff more than I ever did. Um, halfway through. This is embarrassing. Halfway through, I realized, oh, there's a 50 millimeter cam- lens in here for it. Also, nifty 50, which I learned about later. What is this for? Why would I ever want to use this? Why would I, I never want to use? I have Zoom. I can come in and out. Why would I ever want to use this? Well, idiots, you can get better aperture, and you can get some bokeh shots. You can get some nice little beautiful shots in here and make it look better. So, uh, know how to use a camera before you make a movie. Um, I, to be fair. I cut myself. I, I am very self-depreciating, but um, deprecating. That's the better word. Um, but I did have, again, went into this with ideas of not really being the director of this thing and not definitely not being the AD of it. Um, went into just being the writer and, and actor in it as well. Which, by the way, don't ever direct and be the actor of your movie at the same time if you can help it. I was one of the stars of the movie, not because I'm a... Uh, narcissist just because that's the way the script went um but being because as the movie went on people had other projects to do next thing i know i'm in the camera and i'm doing this i'm doing that taking more and more over and i didn't know what i was doing so getting it behind the camera the first time like oh boy i didn't know what iso was i didn't really great what the aperture was i had to learn that as problems developed so I dug my own hole there, but the beautiful thing was I had a great friends around me that could help me out, and the movie looks great. I don't know how, <laughs> it, but it looks great because I uh, took the time to learn it. What I didn't know were little small things. Like people would tell me, well, if it's lit well, if it's bright, you can always darken it. Well, that's all true until it gets overblown, oversaturated. Yeah, the T3i is not. I underexpose if I use the T3. Underexpose. Yeah. I like to. I like to keep mine right between negative one and negative two on my light meter because I like to have my movie look filmy and darky. But when I filmed outside for the first time because my AD couldn't make it, I had to jump on the camera. Okay, this is what happens when you direct it. You have to jump into something. And if you don't know 100% what you're doing, you're in trouble. And I got in trouble on a couple shots because I had to film outside. My AD couldn't make it. I'm like, oh, I'll just have to shoot it because we have to go keep on schedule. And... I shot it and it was too bright. I got no problem, right? I've been told a thousand times if it's too bright, you can just darken it. Well, if you oversaturate, next thing you know, you can't darken that at all, and it's just it's just wasted shot. If you have a neutral density filter, which I did and didn't know what it was, that would have helped a lot. So um, you need to know what you're doing before you go into it. Um, the fact that I've been able to scrap together a decent movie at all is a miracle. Um, 
But definitely learn from that as far as if you're going to go into it. You need to know everything about the filmmaking business. If you're going to direct it, know everybody's job. And and so um, you shot this with the kit lens, mm-hmm. the T3i, and mm-hmm. then the uh, Nifty 50. Yes. Okay. And those are the only two lenses you used? Yes. Okay. Um, just just a real quick side note, just so you know some of our audience, um, they use uh, just the... Um, give some idea on the equipment, like the equipment they're used to using sure. is like $40,000 cameras Absolutely. on like 60 to $100,000 TV commercials and stuff like that. Sure. Um, so, okay. So we're talking like bare bones, um, feature filmmaking, mm-hmm. um, here. And so you got the T3i, mm-hmm. um, um, excellent beginner camera. Yes. I totally agree. Um, you got the kit lens, nifty 50, You've got some Amazon LED lights. Yes. Um, just got, I assume, a basic tripod. Any other camera support? Yes. Going on? I got my. Uh, this is weird. I actually um, have a uh, director friend, Vic Bonacore, who's made a lot of movies. Um, Diary of a Deadbeat with Jim Van Beber is like one of his most famous things. Um, he came on my set one day. And was like, what is this awful tripod you're using? And it is awful. And my, my uncle, who passed away, was who got me into horror movies in the first place. Um, but this was his tripod he used, and I was I was dead set on using this tripod through my, through my whole movie. Um, nothing fancy about it. Doesn't have the little balancing bubbles on it, which you want to have. Doesn't have a smooth slide, which I definitely need because I love pan shots. Um, but I was I'm a very sentimental sentimental person, which is one of the reasons this movie got made. Um, I was having some locations were going to get lost. I was going to have some people I was going to lose to being moving, and. Um, I wanted to get this movie made just to have kind of a time capsule of my friendships and the places I had been and things I had done. It was, it was a very personal movie. Um, I think it was very great, but um, definitely caused some sentimental, sentimentality, caused some issues that uh, crept in. They said, they, the tripod's awful. Um, you need to get a better one. Like, I know, but um, I made the movie I wanted to make with the equipment I wanted to make, with the people I wanted to make, and where I wanted to make it. And I'm proud of that. It's it's, but uh, I definitely wanted to come on here, and I was going to write a book and share my nightmare experiences with the people out there. But I will give it to you for free because I'm a nice guy, and I'm half drunk on your bourbon, which nice. I think is a trick. It might be. <laughs> um, so grip equipment, I imagine you're not using any C stands, any flags, nets, overhead frames. That would be nice if I knew what those things were. Yeah. Uh, I used bounces for the lights. I knew what bounces were. What are you um, using for bounces? Um, well, I got these little fancy little um, circle things that can fold up in okay. the little package. So I got nice ones there. Um, you get little poster board things you use certain places of the white things to shoot down. So I, I learned as I went. It's one of those things, I, you know, it's funny now to go through and laugh about it. But through the process, it was so heartbreaking because you're like, you don't even know what you don't know. And it's, it's a joke. But... Um, Thankfully, I had people around me that made it better, and thankfully, I worked through it. But um, anyway, so there we go. Sound-wise. Sound-wise, yes, absolutely. A um, couple problems with my sound, which I didn't even know was a problem. What equipment were you using? Well, here's the thing, right? So T3i is a wonderful camera, but it doesn't have a port for a microphone to listen to what you're getting sound-wise if... It has a port for a microphone, just not the headphones. You're correct. That's what I'm saying. You cannot listen to your headphones through it. It does have a port for a microphone, which is, by the way, what I decided to be a great thing to use. Why? Because I thought that's what you did. Um, I tell you, this people. What you're using the internal mic? 
No, God, I wasn't that dumb. Okay. I actually used a Rode um, video mic okay. for my um, first time. So I plugged straight into the DSLR, DSLR camera, which worked okay. It wasn't great. Um, if I had to do it over again, I definitely would have used a sound recorder. That scared me at the time because I was new. I'm like, that's just one more thing I have to worry about and put into and sync later. How do you do that? Don't know. It'd be better just to put it straight into the camera. And it with, worked okay, but. With your budget, I can, I can definitely agree. Okay. Well, great. Thanks. Going straight into the camera. And it worked out okay. It's just like a lot of post-production stuff. I didn't, here's the thing, right? So it didn't have a headset mic and I wasn't smart enough to know the difference. So I listened to it on the camera and it sounded fine. I put my card into my computer, downloaded it, listened to my computer, sound sounded fine. And I think, oh, I'm golden. This is great. And, and he laughs because he didn't know what I found out later. was I'm making this movie. I'm like, oh, this guy's making a movie. This is great. So I got jobs, I don't know how, making commercials. And the first time I realized I was in a little bit of trouble was I filmed a commercial and it looked great. Kudos to myself. I have a good eye for what I'm shooting. I'm proud of myself on that. And But I sent it into the commercial to the commercial place that like, the, the, the TV station got. I'm like, um, dude, what's with your sound? I'm like, what's wrong with my sound? It sounds great. It's like, it's hissing everywhere. I'm like, what? I had no idea. I literally had no idea. So I went back and they told me, have you listened to headphones? I'm like, no, listen to my computer. I'm like, dude, you got to listen through headphones. I'm, like, this, I'm learning this as I go. Don't do that. Know what you're doing before you get in hand. So I put my computer, <laughs> put my headphones on my computer, listened to it. I had no idea there was all this freaking noise underneath it. They had to actually go through and noise reduce and take all that noise out and then amplify and cut through. None of that did I know. None of this did I know. And so it's just the things you go through when you try to jump into your feet first into something. But you know what, though? Thank God for that commercial because I learned then, oh, I'm in trouble. i got to figure this out. So I actually learned from that. Okay, noise reduction. I go back in my movie, which I'm still working on, and start working on that and get that noise cleaned up. Because I've been to the end, thought of my edit was perfect, sent it to somebody. I looked really bad. Um, but also, video mic, great. Definitely, if you can, I couldn't afford it at the time. If you can, upgrade to the VideoMic Pro, especially the new ones, which are great. Um, they have a 20 decibel plus feature on them, so you can get better audio on them. Um, the new ones have better battery control and whatnot. They use AA instead of 9 volts. So pay attention to that. I'm getting better at that now. But if you can learn from me, yeah, if you can, do that. That will help, definitely help with your audio bring in and not to give you so much garbage in the background. Were you? Are you familiar with Magic Lantern? Magic Lantern, yes. Were you using that? I was not using Magic Lantern. Oh, I love Magic Lantern. That's what That's what actually, um, I used to use the T3 all the time. Um, T3i, sorry. Um, all the time, and I used to, what made it a usable camera for me was really nice lenses mm -hmm. and Magic Lantern. Okay. Um, and like Magic Lantern, like even though it doesn't have a headphone port on the camera, like if I was recording internally, at least I'd be able to see the audio levels. Mm -hmm. on that so um and then also just has a ton of other features that are super useful and also in addition to like nice lenses like having nice filters for them too sure. like you can actually you know make that camera have more of a dynamic range than it actually has um so that it doesn't uh clip so easily especially when you're outside sure um so okay so we kind of covered equipment um, what kind of, um, tell us specifically of challenges, mistakes, horror stories. You don't you have, have a long enough podcast for this, sir. Um, tell us maybe your, um, 
your worst one or your My best one? Worst However, do you one? define that? Horror stories. The one that'd be most interesting, most helpful. Boy, I, I hopefully all this has been interesting and helpful. Um, I tell you what's on my mind right now has nothing to do with equipment. It has to do with scheduling. Um, I love making movies. I love being part of movies. I love acting in movies. I've been in nine varying speeches from supporting to main cast of a movie. And I love being on set. I love being there. I love helping in any way I can. I love being on set all the time. I could be there 24 hours a day if I wanted to. What that caused problematically, however, was this movie was my movie. I was 100% invested in it. I assumed, not assumed, but I actually was under the impression that everyone else was 100% on board with it. And they were. But people have lives. I didn't get that. I didn't have one. Um, <clears throat> I could have been on set 24 hours a day. I wouldn't have cared. So when I set my schedule up, I was like having... 16-hour, 17-hour shoot days. My God, like, oh, people will be fun. This is great. We're having fun. We're all friends, right? And that's true. But you start doing 16, 17-hour shoot days. By about hour 13, people are cranky. And by hour 15, no matter what you're shooting, it's not usable anyway. Because it's you're tired. You're not seeing straight. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. Um, and the performances have gone down. And that's 100% on me um, there because... I just went off of what I would do, what I want, what I like. And that's what I assume everyone wants to do is just be there and be around friends and being working. But, you know, people have lives. They have jobs. You know, some people's jobs are rough and they're tired and they have fans and family they want to get back to. And I get that. hundred percent get that now. When I was first filming, I didn't get that. Um, I didn't get what an absolute burden I was putting on some people as far as time frame. That's why I say if you want to shoot a movie, keep your, at least early on, so you know what you're doing 100%. Keep your locations tight. Keep your schedule tight. You know, make sure you're talking to people and communicating with them when they're available, what time frames they have, if they're good being here the whole day. And I tried to do that, but still my shoes ended up going too long. And um, it was a problem. And I, I could see it absolutely in my footage. So don't try not to do that because you'll find out the longer you go the worse your footage gets usually in the evening it's really bad uh, mine was that way I ended up having to go I can see it and it goes into the movie like man if I'd have shot that but you know 10 o'clock in the afternoon or evening instead of 3 in the morning it have been a great scene now it's just an okay scene and these things bleed through and that's what's bled through a lot of my stuff it's just like little things that if I'd have learned in my shorts wouldn't have shown up in a big feature is, is that uh, little things that make it just a little less than it should have been so I definitely think that's a big thing I'm working on right now because I did a um, I did an epilogue shoot and it was a 37 page epilogue I tried to shoot in a weekend and that was you tried to 37 pages 37 pages in, in a weekend. weekend and we did it mostly but the last couple hours of each day were rough and mostly it went okay but it got worse and I could see it got worse and I had to end up doing reshoots. I'm doing reshoots in a couple of weeks with people who still talk to me <laughs> because I tried to kill them. And everyone looked at me and said, you're doing 37 pages. And, but to be to my credit, thank God, and to everyone else's credit, like, dude, you almost pulled it off. We got about 34 to 37 done in the weekend. And not and pretty good. But uh, yes. But these are the Was things. It, is this a three-day weekend or is this a no, two-day weekend? Two a normal weekend. weekend. This is a normal weekend. Okay. I know. But, you know, this is what you get when you're stupid and you're trying to get things through and you're working with people who really want to be there. And they're right, and they're, thank God they're my friends and they're very, very talented and they're going through it with me. But if I do it over again, I would never do that. Don't do that. And that's one of my lessons I learned. I'm going to put through to everyone else. 
10 hour days is the most I'll ever do again. I think that's about right. Most. So, so it all sounds catastrophic, but here, listen, Pinocchio, I'm, I'm very proud of the movie. It's great. Um, but if I can, I'm here today to teach you what I did wrong. And that's what I did wrong, 100%. Too many pages in a day, not a good idea. You just, it doesn't look good in the end route. You end up upsetting people. You end up having crappy footage after you shoot anyway. So don't do that. Just save yourself time. Luckily, I have friends and everyone else who believe in the project. We're coming back and reshooting every couple of days, but it shouldn't have ever come to that. So, Do you have a horror story with lighting? Yes. Um, I didn't understand lighting. I had to learn the key and the fill and the backlight. I didn't know any of this stuff. You understand? I just went into this. I, again, it wasn't planning on directing. I just kind of got thrown into that project and took it on and went through it and learned through it. But my lighting was just, you know, things got not lit well like unfortunately my friend noah was a tremendous lighting guy tremendous he did a lot of movies so he taught me a lot of things along the way but um one of the things we had was we had a person bleeding out on a black surface and we could we kept no matter how much we lit the area the red blood on the black surface mm-hmm. you couldn't see the damn things it, it, everything was lit all the same way. I was like, well, just bright, more light, more light, more light. Well, it didn't work because the red and the black just lit at the same time and you couldn't get any separation. And finally, my good friend who I love forever, Randy Jennings, who's a local photographer here who's filmed every friggin' rock star in the 70s and 80s. is an amazing guy. Luckily, he was on the set with me that day. He's like, who has a tungsten flashlight? And someone had a, a tungsten mag light flashlight or whatever. Like, Come here. And he took the flashlight and he made it into a spotlight and just on the red. And that popped out so much better that it's just because I didn't understand how the lighting worked and what will work and what won't. It was like two hours trying to get this freaking red to show up on the freaking floor. And I couldn't do it. He's like, five minutes, like, give me the freaking flashlight. He held it in the freaking light and the blood popped out like a mother. It looks great now, but it took us two hours to get something I should have known about in the first place. So uh, that's definitely a horror story with lighting. Um, make sure you have plenty of batteries because those, those LEDs will die on you when you don't expect it. And then you're like running around and make sure you have plenty of battery packs around the place where you're recharging them constantly and they recharge before your day goes. So you can just pop them in, you can keep going. Because the last thing, last thing you want to have is no freaking light on your set. Um, so that's definitely a lighting thing. Oh, if you're going to shoot outside at night, A, don't because things get dark and you lose stuff and no one knows what things are. No one can read their script and it's awful. But definitely make sure you have tons of light out there. If you can, have an extension cord to like a real like work light. So if anything else goes out, you still have some light to work by. Um, that's my lighting horror stories. And You're getting um, more than you bargained for. See, he, <laughs> he brought me in here to say, this guy, yes. Yes, horror stories. Um, and I do want to concentrate on the horror stories and then we can wrap it up in the lessons. Okay. Oh, learned. boy. Um, but... Um, any horror stories with the camera itself or the lenses? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I I had a 32 gig um, card the second day I was shooting. And I almost got filled up the first day. And first day went great. I was very proud of my first day. First day went smooth as silk. I was at one location. Everything was smooth. Insert dialogue. No special effects. Oh, that was great. All that I can do. All that I should have done. Second day had a lot of special effects to it, a bunch of time jump stuff here and there, which again, very proud of. I, like I said, I'm a very Hitchcockian, 
guy and I love foreshadowing in my movie. So when I made the second day shoot, I knew it was going to be rough because we had to shoot the same scene in three different ways to make it look different time frames of the movie in terms of different perspectives. And in that time, I'm like, man, I'm going to be busy, busy, busy. Let me get a 64-bit gigabyte card. Instead of a 32, I'm going to worry about spacing. Put it in there, got to the set that day, went to turn on the camera, camera wouldn't turn on. Crap. What's going on? Called the person who originally owned the camera. What's going on? I can't figure out what's going on. Turn the camera off 15 times, turn it off, turn it off, turn it off, turn it on. Wouldn't work, wouldn't work, wouldn't, wouldn't work. So I borrowed someone else's camera and shot that day, and the footage is almost the same, but not quite. Came to find out later, the T3i doesn't like a 64-bit gigabyte card. It's too much card for it. It's like, was post, whatever, it's te- technologically doesn't work. It'll take 32, but it won't I've work used, with 64. 64. This no. one wouldn't do it. It, would not, it wouldn't even turn on with hmm. 64. So I put 32 back in it, worked fine. But the whole day was almost lost because I tried to put in a new card that it just wouldn't talk to. And it's, it's the weirdest thing. Because I swear, I told my friends that, like, I swear I tried shooting on it the night before with the 64. And it worked fine. But the day of shooting, didn't want to talk to that 64 whatsoever. And so that was that was an absolute nightmare. On top of just the fact that, you know, being thrust in, the second day I was in the AD. Second day I had an AD on board who was really good AD because I didn't want I knew I didn't know on some things I knew I didn't know how to run a camera so whenever I had someone I needed to have available I brought them in he was running a camera <clears throat> but later on he couldn't make a shoot and I had to jump in behind the camera but I still didn't know what I was doing and that's when I had the one shot that was very very important in the movie that I didn't I had overblown because the sun was right in the freaking camera and I'm like oh no problem I was told that if it's too bright you can always turn it down but you can't when you overexpose and I'd overexposed. And now that shot has to be either redone or I got to figure out how to shoot a different way around it or edit around it, which I don't want to do. Um, which, by the way, people, if I have to tell you something right now, fix it in post is the worst thing you can ever hear someone say. A lot of actors and people say, oh, just fix it in post. They can say that. But if you're editing it and you're sound mixing it, that 15 minute save on the day of shooting isn't is worth it because it's going to be hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of trying to fix it in post or you might not be able to fix it at all. So don't try to fix anything in post. Do it on the day. Even if it takes a few more, an hour, do it because uh, that post fixing, unless you're a miracle worker, is not a good idea. I can agree with that. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of getting it right on camera first, um, even to the point of you really getting picky with the lighting and, and filters and stuff like that. And a lot of people are like, Oh, you can just take it down and post and like, eh, I could, but, but I'd rather not rather rely not. on that. And as a director, one, one of the things I want to put on people too, is you are working. I mean, everyone's working hard in this thing, but for me, I wrote it, I directed it. I'm editing it. I'm sound mixing it. I'm doing all that work. So I have more invested in my time than anybody. So, um, I am a people pleaser. That's one of my problems is I'm a people pleaser. So when people say pick it in post, I'm like, fine, I won't waste your time. We'll fix it in post. Well, that's more time on me. And that was problematic. So make sure with your actors, you're nice, you're friendly, all that stuff, but make sure you're getting what you want. A lot of times for sake of making people get out on time or making sure that they were happy on set, I compromised and said, okay, no problem. We won't shoot that again. We're done. We'll move on. I didn't get exactly what I wanted. And it's a problem later. 
I've got shots now that could have been awesome that are now just eh, okay, or eh, unusable because I tried to please other people. And they, they're gone. You know, they worked one day and they're gone. They don't care about this project anymore. You're working on this every day for hours and hours and hours. So do yourself a favor. Don't be a dick, but be clear and make sure you get what you want as much as feasibly possible. This is this is one of the reasons I started um, a while ago paying people to work on my projects because I felt better about at like I, I didn't I like when I when I was first starting out and doing projects where people were working on for free and stuff like that I was so stressed and frazzled and like work rearranging everything to fit to make it convenient for them sure. because they weren't getting paid and it just worked against me and so I was like okay if I start paying people then I won't feel bad like hey like sit in this room while I get this thing figured out and let you know while we work on this and get it set up for real and and just it it ends up working a lot better I can't uh-huh. agree more I actually had a uh, a horror story when I get to horror stories um, during the two day the two day marathon shoot it should have been five pages into being 37 um, I had an actor not show up a buddy of mine who I thought was a buddy of mine who I met who's a theater guy um, he wanted to part so bad I wrote a part for him put him in and it made it an important part of the story and didn't show up to set we had to shoot so what do I do I'm like okay well I gotta figure out something so I rewrote the scene on set in 30 minutes. I'm like, take a break, have lunch, everyone. Let me rewrite this scene. And I rewrote the scene. And it works out okay. I had to do some weird cuts to it, but it works out okay. But that pushes behind a little bit, right? So now I have actors coming in later on who have their schedules and whatnot. And they want please and they want push through. And they don't necessarily care about this problem I had two hours ago that pushed me an hour and a half behind because I had no actor show up. I had to read the scene, I had to reshoot the scene, I had to frame everything. So, and again, that same thing where we talked about before is, okay, still got to please these people that I did not pay. They're friends of mine, which they're, they're great, but still thing. And, um, you know, hurt the film. So, yes, I 100% agree. If you can pay people, pay them. What about post-production? Have you had any horror stories with that? Yeah, because I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So, um, yeah, this is going to sound like I'm a terrible person, and I'm not. It's going to sound like it's a terrible film, but it's not. I actually think it's great. It's just been a lot of work. Um, cause I'm le- it's like a friggin' learning project. I should have done it in a short. And please, again, we're reiterating, do shorts first. Learn these problems. Um, my post-production, horror stories, yeah. I'd never edited anything in my life. So I had to learn Adobe Premiere and edit this movie as I'm shooting on top of everything else. And doing that, and then I realized that Horst, her story number two, didn't have a double check on my headset, on my microphones for my sound. So the edit looks good, sound looks good on my computer, sound terrible later. So all oh, my edits taking, you know, six hours per minute at least to edit through because I've got to go through all those things. And here's another editing horror story. You want to talk about horror stories? Is I came from theater. I always did theater. Theater's my thing. I directed theater. I wrote theater. So I always like the master shot, the master shot, the master shot. I want the master shot. Well, the problem is you've got to make sure you've got some insert shots and cutaway shots to go to. So if anything goes wrong, 
you have something to save the scene. Oh no, there's a boom pole on my scene. Guess what? It's screwed. You can't get away from it. So my first couple, the, the second day especially, I think, is when I had the most problem because I had to jump on board and be more um, on board with my camera. And I wanted my master shots. And take that into editing. And next thing you know, you don't have coverage. And you're shot. You're screwed. So the production, the post-production, a lot of that difficulty is based upon how well you did during your production. If production went well and you got good coverage and you got good sound, guess what? Your post-production is not going to be too... I mean, it's difficult. No doubt it's difficult, but not as bad. Actually, this goes into pre-production. Did you have a <laughs> Did you have a shot list? Yes, absolutely. I, I'm very diligent when I do. I, as much as I am stupid and foolhardy, I like being... It sounds silly, but I like being prepared at the same time. So my shot lists were good, um, and my schedule was good, and I had like little, you know, set shot one is this, master shot set two is this, this, but not as early on. Um, after halfway through, I got better at that, but because mainly because the early part of my set, I was relying on some people who were there, um, who ended up not being there as much later on, but. Luckily, I had done a lot of ideas as far as what I wanted to see, but I didn't put in the thought of cutaways. Again, this is all from a theater background. You don't have cutaways at the theater. It's like a master shot. This is your canvas. But two things so with you're, that. You're, you're thinking uh, more like when cinema first was invented. Yes, before they like, learned how to edit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I learned pretty quickly that master shots are fucking boring on screen just looking at this fucking master shot forever and then it's like i have no cutaways i don't have any coverage and they were trying to tell me this and i did not know this and moreover i had an actor on set who i love a guy named jeff berkman in dayton anyone can give him any work and shoot him out he's amazing what but he's uh, he's not great on memorizing his lines so i gave him these huge monologues that i love to do and he couldn't get through them all the time not to his fault because they're huge, but um, he wanted, he'd get through most of it and then break. And I'm like, okay, start over. And we start the whole thing over again. Start over. We did that for like three hours. And my AD was pissed. And my actor was a friend of mine, so not pissed, but annoyed and tired. And then now I can go, she just fucking cut away. The reaction shot and come back. Did not know this stuff. I honestly did not know this stuff. And that's on me, right? It's completely on me because I just didn't understand the nuances of filmmaking. And the fact that I've made this movie and it's going to be, it's amazing is a fucking miracle because it shouldn't have been because I've made so many damn mistakes and it should have been great. It should have been a 10. It's going to end up being a seven. I'm not going to lie to anybody. It's going to be good, but it's going to be a seven, not going to be a 10. That's on me. If I'd have been a great director, it'd be great. But I did not make my mistakes early. I did not make myself. I didn't make mistakes in pre-production. Didn't make myself some production. Didn't make myself in post-production. I had not cut my teeth. I'm cutting my teeth on the huge project, which was a huge mistake. But I learned a lot from it, and I'm getting a great movie out of it. But it could have been amazing. How long have you spent on this? Well, I started writing it in 2015. So I wrote 2015. We had our first cast read table read in 2016, which was great. Probably my favorite moment of the whole friggin' production was the cast read. Because I'm a writer. That's right, I do. I write. And they loved what I wrote. And I was so proud of that. And then we go into production um, January 2016. And we did one weekend a month until eh, December. So we did 12 shoot days. And then I've done some. 
with the epilogue, I've done a couple shoots here and there since then, and a couple little pickups here and there. Because I knew it was going to be a long production shoot, because I couldn't do like a full weekend. Because I knew, as a new director, I couldn't do two full days, because I had to take time to understand what I had done, look at it, see what mistakes I had made, and fix that the next time and make it better and better. But I knew I was going to have to learn as I go. So I didn't want to do a whole weekend and be shit. So I, I spread it over. And I, I talked to my actors, like, look, do you have this time? Can we do this? Is this something you're interested in? I wanted to be sure I was honest with everybody. Look, it's going to be a long process. I go into it. And they were, but all of us were the same boat. You know, yes, I'll do it, but life happens, right? Over the course of a year, life happens. People get pregnant. People get moved. People get new jobs or schedule changes. People get tattoos. It causes continuity errors. So, so all of it. All of it. Yeah. When I, So... When I very first started, my my first short, I did I did a short first, um, in fourth grade. Why? Um, <laughs> and then uh, between um, fifth and sixth grade, between that summer, I decided to do my first feature. Um, so I kind of I kind of learned some things on the on the short, applied it to the feature. Still made tons of mistakes mm-hmm. on that, and and one of them was actually I um, I hit puberty between during that summer so like me at the beginning of the film and you know back then like you don't you have zero dollars to make your sure your your film so like i'm kind of starring in in my own feature and me at the end of the film which sometimes the stuff i shoot at the end is in the middle like (laughs) completely different like my voice changed i nice like four inches taller completely different look Um, sure so yeah i can even as adults, people change over over the course of do. twelve months. Um, did you ever did you ever feel like giving up during this process? Yeah, and it was weird because I was so gung ho on it, and I was so determined, right? Because I was like, "I'm right." Yeah, no, I don't know what I'm doing, but you know what? Though it was kind of one of those things I always wanted to make a movie. It didn't really matter. It mattered, but it didn't. I wanted to make this movie. I wanted to get my people in it before they moved away. I wanted to get these locations before they went away. I wanted to tell something new and exciting and different. It's like, fuck it, we're just going to do it. Um, I was so gung-ho, I didn't even look at the problems I was having. I'm like, screw it, go on, go on, go on, go on, go on. And then finally, it just hit me one day where for the 50th time, an actor couldn't make a set. And I just looked up and I'm like, I have to either rewrite this scene or take it out, or edit around it. And I'm freaking exhausted. I was so tired. I'm like, man, one more freaking problem I cannot deal with. And at that moment, it just hit me the first time. It just flittered by my mind. Is, is this worth it? Is this worth it? What are you doing? But I tell you what, I am a bitter, bitter person. And the only thing, not the only thing, because the people who love you, We'll support you no matter what. You say, yeah, this problem came up. I get it. We couldn't finish it because of this. But I don't look at things that way. I look at the people who say you can't do it. And I'm not ever going to let them be right. I don't care. I'm fucking doing it. That's what got me through. It wasn't the people who supported me. It was the people who were against me. I said, you'll never be able to finish the movie. Fuck you, I'm finishing it. It's not, it's not going to be a 10... Like that's, a one that's dangerous, though. It's going to be what it's going to be. Um, 
and I'm I'm happy with what it is. I'm not happy with how much struggle I had to go through. I'm doing all my cutting my teeth at one time. Is it dangerous? Sure, sure it is. But my inspiration is my inspiration. Is that never gonna be never gonna be stopped just because people say you can't do it? I'm gonna prove you wrong. I'm gonna do it. So that's where I'm at now. Is I got a lot of people now excited to see it because you know we're gonna sit here and bash on what, how the process went. That's not bashing the movie. There's amazing shit in it. I'm so proud of it. I got great people in it. There's great effects in it. It's a great story. The fact that it's getting on the screen at all is a miracle because of all the issues I've made, problems behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to show up on the screen only in that certain scenes aren't going to look as good as it could have been. A little bit out of focus here. Eh. The color's not great here. Eh. But I just went to Nightmare Film Festival and some p- movies got put on um, as best feature for Ohio. I saw a thousand problems with them. A thousand problems with them. No one cares. It's a great yep. story, whatnot. So I have hope, like, look, man, is it a perfect movie? No. Is it good? Is the story great? Yes. Is the acting good? Yes. Are the effects good? Yes. Am I proud of it? Hell yes. Uh, am I proud of how I've grown? Yes. Would I have started a different way and done it differently? Fuck yes. Because it would have been a lot easier. Would you do it again? My wife asked me the same question. I keep saying I'm going to do it again. Uh, I actually had a guy uh, came on set, and I've had a lot of people, you know, even though all these horror stories, come on my set and say, set's running great. Looks good. For a first-time director, you're doing wonderfully. And I actually had a guy come on my set and say, I've seen pro sets not run this well. And that made me feel really great. Because I know they're being honest. They're not bullshitting me. They're people that they're not, they're not bested in it. They're being honest. And um, I've gotten along. I've gotten better. And I got one of my guys the last set offered to produce a movie for me. Said, I'll pay for it. What do you want to do? And that was a great compliment. And um, I don't know. The, the reason I did this movie is it was very personal. You know, it was very personal. I had locations that people wanted to use and things I wanted to use. And that was very important to me. And that everyone's, you know, everyone bashes what I'm doing. I did it for a reason. I'm very sentimental. I want these people in this movie. I want to do this. I don't know that I have another story to tell like that. I have a comedy I'm writing this with a buddy of mine, uh, Mike Canestaro, who's a tremendous guy in town and a tremendous talent. If I get a story that's fun and is exciting, it's smaller, not as spread out. I can do it in a short time. I would be inter- I would do it again, but I'd have to have a great support system. Um, I think it's what well, I've seen other people who have great movies and great people. It's not just one person. It's a group, at least two or three or four, that share a vision and will support each other. And that's what I would definitely need to make sure that I had another, if I was going to do another one, make sure I had a great partner or two that really involved in making it. Mm-hmm. Just doing yourself is exhausting. It is. It's, I, did, I did one feature. That's it. I have not done one since. And I... There's two that I would possibly do that I have ideas for, but like honestly, like unless I had minimum, minimum like forty or sixty thousand dollars to do them, and that would be like bare budget, like pulling a bunch of strings to get it done the way I'd want it to get it done. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't even touch it. It's just there's so much work. I'll do, I'll do like super short films, sure, all day long before I touch a feature again, and it's. Like, like I said, fifth and sixth grade, like that, it's been that long for me. Like it, there's, there's so much work. 
They are. And again, I didn't know that. And I really, really didn't. Like I said, I worked with an amazing director to make it look easy. I made it look super easy. Folks, it's not easy. There's so much going on, you don't know. And um, I had a gentleman who was going to direct this one and just couldn't. And at the time, I didn't understand it. 100% get it now. 100%. Because it's so hard. So, there you go. And um, so your biggest lesson, your biggest takeaway know everything if you're going to be involved in everything a director directing to know everything and i didn't know everything i learned as i went and um, i pulled off what i could but um definitely i mean it goes to everything you know take your time do a do a short you know, learn your scheduling learn your lighting learn your audio learn this make all your mistakes early until you're trying to fight through them on a huge project which is so time consuming so time consuming. Can't even tell you how many hours. It'd be unbelievable to tell you um, how many hours I've got working on this project. So, um, but I will tell you this: one lesson I learned is it's a freaking blast being on set with people when you do something great. It's amazing having the final result is amazing. Looking back what you've done after all the edit and work, and you laugh at it, even if you've looked at it a thousand times, you still laugh at it. And so this is a, looks good. It's I, I wanted to make art. I wanted to do something amazing, and I was happy to do that. Um, but I could have made it easier on myself, that's for sure, by going through the lessons of practice, do your small things first before you do something huge. <laughs> it, it's definitely addicting, um, <laughs> filmmaking crack. Like I, I was definitely hooked the first time, and uh, I can't quit it. I understand. I understand. Um, so if people wanted to find out more about you or your film, where would they go? Yeah, if you want to go through and, and learn, say, look, even with terrific problems, if you're a first-time filmmaker, want to make something amazing, want to make some art, want to make something personal, um, my movie is called Severed Ties. You can find it on Severed Ties movie page on Facebook. Um, look at the trailer, look at some of the clips. Uh, I'm really proud of those. i got a lot more to come on very, very soon. Uh, I am Adam Clevenger. Come on Facebook if you, you want to talk. Hey, you want to shoot me questions? If I can do anything, I, I told uh, Mr. Steele here this, like, I came on here to save other filmmakers the problems I had. You know, am I glad I did it? Yes. You know, I want you to not have the same problems I had. Yes. So if you have questions, please. I have no problem helping you out with that whatsoever. But I don't want to make sure you're aware that, you know, Severed Ties is, a, is going to be a great movie coming out in 2018. I'm looking forward to it. And hopefully it'll knock your socks off. Great characters, great revenge story, uh, great effects. Um, it's fun. Great. And I, and I know we talked uh, a little bit before we recorded um, how some people said uh, – not to do a feature first and you ignore yes. them anyway and uh yes. we're hoping that um will at least get you to think twice <laughs> before, <laughs> i would i would 100 say before trying to tackle a feature 100 say do a short first i i didn't have a short story to tell so we're jumping with a feature um hey more power to you but i was just if you can't at all put it off a couple i couldn't put mine off because i was losing the locations losing some actors so i couldn't put mine off so i had reasons for what i did um but I would have been well served, and you will too, by taking some time and learning about everything, everything before you jump in. Cool. And I'm, I'm glad you've learned a lot along the way and uh, have. Um, that you're happy with uh, how it's going to turn out despite setbacks. Despite setbacks. I've aged tremendously. My hairline is gone, but uh, the movie will be there forever. So. Um, nice having you on. 
Thanks for having me. Till next time. Cheers. Cheers.